dead in winter would bring you down forever But you rode upon a steamer to the violence of the sun Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock, and I wish you a happy new year in 2023. I'm going to be recording a lot of uh, uh, flurry of activity, I hope, in the coming weeks here. I know I've been on a bit of a hiatus, uh, sort of day job work and writing and things chiefly have been keeping me away from the microphone. But I think actually the microphone can be part of a healthy routine as well uh, and keeps the brain moving in, in other places. Uh, for now, I have actually an episode together with Shunkmanitu uh, or Zitkato, who is the host of the Bands of Turtle Island you may remember. Uh, so this is a really interesting conversation. It, it, it moves according to its own logic, and uh, I, I want to respect that. And it, was, it happened at a certain moment where some interesting things were happening. So Shunkmanitu is a Lakota organizer. If you follow them on Twitter, you will see that they are gathering blankets and all kinds of resources for their indigenous community. And they had done a lot of work with the Red Nation. They've appeared on a lot of great work that they've done, including their book, The Red Deal, right? But they're uh, kind of parting ways there for the moment. And starting a new kind of brand, the rebranding to Chunkaluta, I believe is the new, the new name, C-H-U-N-K-A space L-U-T-A, Chunkaluta, the red path. That moment, it's, it's, uh, I like, I love when I can be a pollinator, a cross pollinator. I'm like a little butterfly bringing the pollen, uh, from, from place to place. And that's a great thing to do, you know, uh, when you can do that. And it, trying to name the talk about the different groups, you know, I almost sort of said, I am a bridge, I'm a pipeline between regular communist uh, Twitter or regular online left and conspiracy online left or, or parapolitics online left, right? That would be one quick way to say that. However, I don't know if the regular people deserve the term regular. When you really think about it, a lot of them are... It, they're grad student communists usually, um, you know, and I'm, I'm an academic myself. Uh, I was a grad student, so no, um, well, it's disrespect, you know, yeah, we, we academics, we bourgeois academics deserve uh, to be looked at askance a little bit, I, I think. And I will say that, including myself, right? I, I feel like on a, on a ideal vanguard party application form, it should say, are you now or have you ever been a grad student? 
Shunkmanitu, incidentally, has not been a grad student, I don't think, ever. And that is what a lot, you know, and some of it is that, and some of it is, um, a lo- you know, think about the people who have started the, the great uh, communist podcasts, right? They're not just communists, but they're, they're also grad students. <laughs> okay. And so, and that's also what constitutes their difference with, I'm, I'm starting to sound like a French theorist here, uh, but it's what constitutes like the, the dialectical contrast with conspiracy communists, right? Which is that um, the conspiracy communists are the ones who have left the realm decisively of bourgeois respectability, believing in civil society, uh, believing in uh, like the basic honesty of legacy media or whatever. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot of trust in kind of a discursive space where uh, shared kind of truth claims are, are present and, and we can kind of like agree on basic reality together with, and, and that goes together with, if you leave that space, then if you leave that space, then it's like, oh, where are you going? Are you, you know, I'm, it's never quite clear what are the topics where y- you have to believe exactly what the police say or else you're not a real leftist, but there is a real kind of liberal uh, zone where that is the case, de facto, even for people who identify as communists. And that can be with, uh, it can even be with something like the JFK assassination, which uh, not because JFK was some kind of great uh, (laughs) secret communist or something. Uh, I don't know who all is listening right now, but let me guarantee to you that nobody on the parapolitics communist side of the spectrum believes that, but it's just about your worldview, you know, like in a world where such an amazing kind of coup d'etat type event could take place. uh, What does that say about your support of Bernie, about your support of the squad, you know, Uh, is, you know, ultra leftism obviously is not the way. Uh, Is there another way, though? Is there other ways to to sort of deal with a, a situation, an AOC, for example, who just over the new year, right, was, uh, uh, voted to crush the railway workers strike, uh, just as the squad has done with nearly everything that, and also we just saw on the Republican side, the MAGA people are forcing the vote. Basically they forced the vote by holding the speakership hostage in exactly the way, uh, that the Bernie people were saying is what we need to do. Even that, no, too much. It wasn't going to happen. So I think that ties in with, you know, what kind of world do you think that you live in? Uh, How much, what is this? It does, you know, uh, left-wing communism and infantile disorder, like, apply in in exactly quite that way right now. When raw class power can be uh, covertly, but... Uh, but also in your face, you know, in a certain way in your face, if you, they set it up so that if you're looking, you can see what the score is and they want you to see, they want you to know that raw class power is out there. So someone like, you know, uh, certain Jacobin writers will say, who also do, uh, quite prominent podcasts, uh, who, uh, you know, will, will really openly say, oh, nobody really knows anything about the JFK assassination. <laughs> no. We know tons, and, and it goes quite against what the security state and what civil society wants you to believe about it, you know, and it's very, very provable 
You know, if you believe in the lone gunman hypothesis, I have to ask you, do you believe that do you mean the lone gunman in Dallas or the one they had set up in Chicago or the one they had in Tampa, Florida? Which lone gunman? And that very sort of pro uh, bourgeois academic respectability bias is is in a, a lot of these these shows, I will submit as much as I respect them and have learned so much from them. So this is a wonderful chance, a wonderful kind of new beginning for Shunkmani to, uh, you know, you'll notice that uh, we weren't even really sure whose show this was going to be uh, at first. I, I realized as we started talking that I wasn't sure what show I was on. But it's a great honor for me to be participating in a kind of re reboot here because they have done this wonderful work, uh, Yoded, right? The Yoded series. Uh, thus far, which they're going to continue. So there's a lot to look forward to there. Uh, first of all, the the rest of uh, I will what I will now call regular 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 communist uh, podcasting world that is not necessarily academically respectable. Uh, it's well sourced. It's scientific. It's rigorous. Right. It's very very grounded in reality. It's materialist. It's dialectical all of these things, uh, but it, it is not academically respectable uh, because I will submit the academic edifice is not respectable, the, not from a proletarian perspective, not from an accurate, if you, if you see the world accurately, you will know that the academic edifice is inherently compromised, you know, from the beginning. I mean, what, what it starts out as uh, kind of part of the feudal uh, ideological apparatus, right? Uh, and in the kingless generation, we'll be sensitive to that as well. Just because something is pre-capitalist doesn't make it egalitarian or, or you know, pre-class society. So no to uh, academic respectability. You can't preserve that, right? So in, uh, let me extend on behalf of uh, all of, all of non-academically respectable communist uh, online left, a, a great welcome to Shunkmani to come on in, the water's fine. And we really look forward to learning from you. I mean, and it could be about any fucking thing, but especially your indigenous perspective uh, and all the insight, wisdom that you'll bring to that. Because if you're a listener, if you are a listener to my podcast, you will know that uh, we need that. We need that to, because we have to deal with all of the different archons, powers, rulers of the air, uh, not just capitalism. There's a lot more other stuff in the background there going back, right, to feudalism, uh, to, to other things that uh, really only indigenous societies would hold the keys to defeating, you know? Very, very successful recent examples of people who have had stable, happy, harmonious societies up until very recently, right? So there's no substitute for that uh, experience, yeah? And also that experience of, of fighting the apocalypse, fighting the, the total meltdown that so many people have already experienced, right? You know, a, a teacher of Shukmanitu would be Nick Estes, uh, whose book, Our History is the Future, is a very inspiring uh, manifesto on along those lines, right? 
the you know indigenous people have already experienced the apocalypse that settlers like us are now about to experience with the uh, in inherent contradictions of the settler relation and of capitalism and everything just uh, totally melting down, right? I mean, so we have a lot to learn uh, from Shukmani too. Definitely check out Chunka Luta, support them on Patreon, all the rest of it. And uh, Shukmani too can't wait to see uh, what directions they go in being plugged into uh, this uh, non-academic respectable online left here. Yeah, can't wait. So for today, what we actually have, the Lusiads, right? Us Lusiadas is an epic poem from and about Age of Exploration Portugal. And it's kind of actually written right at the tail end of the golden age of Portuguese exploration. They're already losing momentum, really, to Spain. But Luís Vaz de Camões is one of the early explorers who writes this uh, epic poems celebrating the Portuguese discoveries in, uh, on the one hand, kind of this classic, like, Christian uh, chivalric romance mode, right? Uh, like Amadis de Gaula, like Esplandian, right? The kind of thing that these explorers had in their heads. That was the, very much the soundtrack or the Bible of the Age of Exploration was these Knight's Tales, which I've already discussed on this podcast. Um, that's the secret core of all kinds of conservative discourse, of even liberal discourses that, that revolve around Western supremacy, European supremacy. Uh, it all comes from these Knight's Tales, these images of these knights, you know, uh, protecting, winning back the islands that the that the emperor of Constantinople wasn't able to hold. But we in the West, you know, we have, we're these wild little guys out on the frontier and we're able to kind of um, fight the dragons and the giants who, who definitely symbolize Islam and the other uh, denizens of the, the actual civilized world at that time, uh, from whom they were capturing capital networks and learning about the magic of capital and learning the magic of drugs, yeah, right? Pharma, pharmacology, right? I have said that if the feudalism can be talked about as the grain state, then capitalism maybe should be talked about as the drug state. They do go really hand in hand in a new way, I think, uh, the, the drugs, right? Um, we've seen that in the picaresque, the Islamic picaresque, where it actually begins uh, in the Islamic world with the Banu Sassan, and uh, is taken over by people like Luis Vaz de Camões, and they're then discovering all kinds of new pharmacological knowledge, plants and animals uh, and their parts and byproducts that can be ingested and smoked and otherwise used to change human, uh, the way that the human body and mind work, right? This is beginning in this time, in the early modern period. Right. We're talking about the 16th century. The Lusiads are first published in 1572. So, um, and yeah, Camões, actually the first poem that he ever published was a poetic introduction to a catalog of uh, pharmacology, a, ca a catalog of drugs, which was a whole uh, prolific genre at this time. All the lists of new drugs that were being uh, 
appropriated, you know, not discovered by the Europeans, but right, learned about. Uh, and this includes things like aspirin. It includes uh, you know, opium, cannabis, and things that we wouldn't consider to be drugs today, like ambergris or something. You know, that's like an ingredient in perfume. It's like basically the the boogers of a whale or something. But apparently at this time, if a European ingested that in particular, uh, they would become uh, animated as if they had drunk a large quantity of wine. So, you know, the, the human bodies are working in different ways and they're interacting with different substances in different ways. There's loads to say, you know, Marcus in Return of the Repressed talks a lot about in, in the about the Green Revolution, right? Those episodes on the Green Revolution are fantastic. God, the recent episodes on like primitive communism in the sea, right? Um, just the idea. I mean, this is the real the real good news that lies behind something like ancient aliens, right? Where where ancient aliens discourse can can take you into a kind of uh, revanchist white supremacist direction. The real truth that is lies there for you to find is that most of humanity at most times was so much freer. It was so much right. And, and when we didn't have class society, when we weren't stuck in this one pattern, we weren't riding this tidal wave of disastrous, destructive, uh, states and armies and ruling classes. Right. Uh, and people were free to explore the, the oceans. Uh, this was a real thing, right? And if there's, a, if there's a truth behind sort of myths of Atlantis or something, right? Like that is the beautiful, wonderful thing that is there. Uh, and, and maybe that, you know, that ties in well with this because, uh, you know, the Lusiads, they, Camoens has a kind of democratic ethos, fittingly for an ancestor of the bourgeoisie. But he ends with a kind of uh, the end of, of Canto 9, which I am dealing with uh, this time. So he says uh, real quick, uh, it's a little, little aside kind of to the king, to the king. He's writing this in honor of King John I, who funded uh, all of this early exploration, right? And he, but he takes him aside and sort of like giving him all this advice, maintain peace with equitable laws, shielding the poor from levies of the rich or gird yourself in shining armor against the enemy Saracens. You will make your kingdom rich and mighty and all will have more and none suffer. Yours will be deserved wealth such as thrives and those honors which shed luster on our lives. So wait a minute, uh, let me back up. Why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because there was the online kerfuffle, you remember. I will say this briefly just to, to tee up the conversation. We should get right into, into it with Shungmani too. But it was a while ago now, but you remember how the, the, they announced that the new Little Mermaid uh, would be black. And a, a lot of right-wingers were sort of saying, oh, you know, this is just representation in, in this very liberal kind of way, whiny, whiny liberal representation. I mean, it's like, it's literally representation. We want a white representation, right? Um, and, uh, you know, that was silly and that was entertaining and stuff, uh, pointing out that. But, but at the same time, I was thinking, oh, my God, you know, uh, because I had read uh, this great piece by a scholar named Deborah Ross called Miyazaki's Little Mermaid, A Goldfish Out of Water. And it's actually a comparison of 
the Disney's Little Mermaid with Miyazaki's Ponyo, right? As two different Little Mermaids. And the things they point out, I remembered what Deborah Ross pointed out about the Disney one, how uh, it's, it's kind of about giving up on freedom and childhood and individuality and buying into kind of a housewife kind of existence and sacrificing yourself for a man. It's actually extremely patriarchal is one of the, th- the main things that is pointed out, right? Whereas Miyazaki embraces more the freedom of the sea and the freedom, the possibilities of evolution as well, you know, looking at those, those scenes of kind of watching evolution happen instantaneously over time. Uh, there, there is, you know, Miyazaki is not like awesome. He's not a model, uh, politically, I don't think, but, uh, I, I fuck with that. You know, those scenes of like things, there, there's something like karmic about that. I have a kind of karmic vision. That's where I get a lot of my hope from, you know, uh, even if I don't make it, even if I don't make it happen, you know, there's things will be repeated. There's a kind of eternal return, but with a change, it always changes. Everything is always changing. And there is an eternal return. Even if this humanity uh, is doomed to extinction, there will be another, there will be other relatives of other species, maybe even on other planets. And they will get it right. They will eventually, right? And, And no matter what, you and I will be part of that story of life even in our failure as individuals or whatever, right? Uh, as meaningful as our individual lives are, uh, definitely reach out today to a, a human being um, or some other, some other relative, whatever. Uh, but if you can look a human being in the eyes and just really see that image, image of God or, or whatever you want to say, right? Uh, connect with somebody in some kind of way. Hug someone if you have someone you, you normally hug. Uh, or whatever you culturally want to do, right? That's a, that's a wonderful thing to enjoy this moment here as a human being, right? Because yeah, we don't know how long that's going to last uh, for us, but at the same time, we know it goes on. Life goes on, uh, and it really will go on, kind of no matter what happens to us. There, there, there is that kind of eternal return, and there are certain images in Ponyo that really bring that out for me. Uh, But what Deborah Ross was doing with The Little Mermaid, talking about how this is so, especially the song, Part of That World. She's looking at all these human things that she sort of collected in this one cave underwater and talking about how, yeah, I need to go and join that that human world uh, to subordinate myself to a man. Uh, And yeah, it's very patriarchal, right? Uh, But what occurs to me is that it's only... Uh, by her being white, uh, that it keeps it only being patriarchal. Uh, because if anything, the modern image of the mermaid derives, uh, I, w- I will say, you know, Shukmani too went and did all this great research about Greek mermaids, uh, mermaids in, you know, maybe what we might even call, uh, you know, little tiny glimpses. I think we would always want to remember how little of what we have uh, is representative of the whole picture of what existed in the past. At any time, the survival rate is very low of any given type of, of document, documentation of the past or evidence of the past, right? 
And so probably a lot more is there that is dark to us. Right. And I mean, that gets us into the ancient aliens kind of thing. Right. And the conservative imagination, the reactionary imagination. Right. Whether it's high class or low class, you know, and most of it is, is reaction from below. That's the interesting thing about reactionary thought. Right. It's it's very, uh, you know, kind of weak and and um, S&M. There's a real S&M dynamic there. Uh, and mostly it's M. Right. Um, mostly it's masochistic. Uh, to be a, a reactionary because you not everybody's going to be on the top, right? Most people are not on the top at all. There's, there's your way on the bottom and it's about reconciling yourself to being on the bottom and getting off on being on the bottom and, and so on. Right. And so notice how this conservative discourse about the black little mermaid, uh, you know, the funny thing about it was that it, pre it presumed that like the mermaid, the little mermaid was a historical figure, right? But in a sense, she was an historical figure. And if she was an historical figure, she comes from the age of exploration. And it's the indigenous women uh, who appear in all kinds of explorers, uh, conquistadors, diaries, uh, talking about, you know, in the best cases, which I'm, I'm sure were a minority, uh, you know, it's about Europeans experiencing kind of non-patriarchal sexual cultures where... Uh, you have group marriage, you don't have an expectation of monogamy on a woman's part because you don't have the need to pass on private property to an heir. And so, you know, the, the sexuality and the reproductive capacity of a woman is not protected as the exclusive property of a father or a clan or a, a class. Ultimately, it would be a, a, a class that owns the body of the woman in a patriarchal society. Well, a lot of these societies they're encountering are not patriarchal. And so, you know, in the best cases, they're experiencing that and it's whatever they, they have this in their diaries. But, you know, uh, in the vast majority of cases uh, that even that we have in diaries and stuff, they're just bragging about, yeah, I rolled up on some indigenous women on the beach and just, you know, um, you know, content warning here uh, and hereafter. Right, having their way, uh, the, these explorers are ha very much having their way with all these indigenous women, and there's an enormous kind of like celebration of that in Canto Nine of the Lusiads. Uh, that's what I want to bring out today, uh, and I'll have a lot of specific quotes from that, which I will present actually after my conversation with Shunkmanitu. After this, um, so with that, I think I have. Uh, basically teed it up. Yeah. Um, at the end of Vasco da Gama, mainly rounding the, the Cape of Good Hope, rounding the Horn of Africa, and uh, sort of getting into the South Asian maritime uh, trading networks and, and blasting their way in there, massacring a bunch of people and securing uh, trading privileges around India. And that little, that key step has sort of been taken in the poem and now they're heading back and it's basically the end second to last canto and so and this is the other interesting thing right all along it's got this kind of knight's tale chivalric romance vibe of you know the soldiers of christ defeating finally the the muslim infidels but then on the other hand, he's imitating the Aeneid and the Odyssey, and he's got a council of gods, Kamoench does. 
uh, a council of gods sort of deciding what the fate of the heroes will be. Um, so there's this interesting tension there, right? And in the council of the gods, the advocate of the Portuguese is Venus, the goddess of love. And then you have uh, the, the advocate of the Muslims is actually Dionysus, interestingly. Um, so you have actually these two figures that both are, are about kind of, um, well, they're both about, yeah, certain kinds of libido, maybe kinds of libido and, and Dionysus is maybe, is that more unrestrained libido? Um, I don't know. You know, you could think of like Nietzsche's distinction between the Apollonian and the Dionysian, um, Apollo being sort of bright, open, uh, and also restrained in a certain way, whereas Dionysian, Dionysus is uh, about a, a bit reckless abandon or whatever, right? This would be in in Roman God, in the Roman pantheon. This is Bacchus, right? The God of wine. Uh, but it's about more than just wine. You know, the, the cults of Dionysus in the Greek world were like orgiastic cults. Um, one of the examples of actually uh, early ritual societies, right? One of the examples that's run by women. In fact, you know, like in Euripides, uh, the Bacchae, the Bacchae, that, uh, that's um, where the hero Pentheus trespasses on the secret rites of Dionysus and the women of that cult uh, catch him and tear him apart. I should probably stop free associating pretty soon here, but uh, another good one would be that that, that distinction, uh, Dionysian and Apollonian, is one that is used by Ruth Benedict one of the great disciples of Franz Boas, the uh, anthropologist who recorded the Kwakwakiwak, uh, right, and in, in so many unfair ways sometimes, right? His disciple, Ruth Benedict, was hired by the U.S. Office of War Information as the head of the Japan group to analyze Japan during the war and help to decide the course that ultimately settled on using the emperor as a puppet, uh, an American puppet after the war, right? Uh, that's evident in the so-called Japan plan, uh, which was written and approved at the highest levels, written by the uh, Office of um, Psychological Operations, um, the Psychological Operations Division, right? Uh, and approved in 1942, June. So June of 1942, like not even, ha like not even half a year, maybe, from uh, Pearl Harbor. And they had already kind of decided to um, use the emperor as a puppet. And Ruth Benedict's scholarship, um, without much data, you know, she's light on data when it comes to arguing that, oh, Japanese people just always obey the emperor. Yes, it's a modern construct, but they couldn't possibly imagine anything uh, else. And, you, you know, you just have to preserve it exactly, you know, whatever. Um, well, it, what it is is like, yeah, it's a construct, but it's a very successful psychological operation that is being used on, uh, that works on these people. So if we want to control these people, uh, hey, we can use it too. So that was that. Uh, right. And she, she had this, this distinction. This is one of her contributions is to divide human cultures into Apollonian and Dionysian cultures. And, you know, there's uh, the thing that we can affirm here about that is that at, at her time, in her day, uh, racism was very much the norm. And she is the pioneer of 
uh, liberal multiculturalism and cultural relativism and saying, hey, there's, you know, people ha can have a whole different set of values and a whole different set of assumptions, right? Uh, which is very accurate, very true, uh, and very important. Something crucial for us there uh, as we build the kingless generation in all different nations. But yeah, so the original Little Mermaid, uh, to the extent that she existed in history, uh, this is the indigenous woman encountering a European uh, conquistador. That's what this is, right? And, and there's a whole scene just sort of uh, celebrating that in all of its violence while denying the violence of it and upholding a certain kind of equality for, for the male explorer, right? Not to say settler. You know, Portuguese were not actually interested in settler colonialism per se in uh, the Eastern Hemisphere anyway. Uh, and in Brazil, you know, I don't know enough. Um, my sense is that the, the slavery there worked very disposably as well. They were just like um, shipping in. You know, you can watch these animations of all the slave ships going across the Atlantic. And it's just like, it's like atomic particles bombarding something like uh, just the dots of slave ships go blindingly fast every year, just every month. Uh, across carrying people to their deaths, you know, to just be worked to death, right? Um, so populations staying there, I don't know, in Brazil, you know, to what extent was the population stable? Um, that would be a question I'd want to ask. Uh, but in any case, right, we have a certain kind of settler, right? And that's what this, this thing is, you know, maintain peace with equitable laws, shielding the poor from levies of the rich, right? I think it might be kind of limited who the subject is of that. Uh, you know, nevertheless, little bourgeois democracy, right? Equality ideas coming into being, um, which must be um, aufgehoben. They must be saved and taken up to a higher register in the kingless generation. So without further ado, uh, the Little Mermaid, the indigenous reality of the Little Mermaid with Shunkmani too. Shamani to uh, Bluebird or Zikato. Um, it's been a while on this feed directly. Uh, a lot of the Patreons might know that I've been doing a bunch of collaborations because I try to centralize that stuff on Patreon. Um, but now we're trying to get back to full swing now that a lovely donor helped fix the computer. So uh, I feel very lucky and blessed by the comrades and people that I influenced and met in my life 
And, you know, I, to me, it's just like more proof of communism's success materially, I guess. Uh, but today we're here with a kingless generation. I don't know. Do you what do you introduce yourself as online? Perhaps you'll introduce yourself. So, yeah, we do. Uh, the Kingless Generation is a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo parapolitics and the demonology of capital. Uh, mm. And I am Fergal Schmoodlock. Can you explain parapolitics a little bit? Just because, yeah, uh, it's so a very, yeah, I got it from you, you know? <laughs> oh, sweet, sweet. It's, I mean, it's like a good word. It's a scientific word for like conspiracy theory, which is a term that the CIA invented to discredit people who are doing uh, class analysis, right? It's funny yeah, that word. Parapolitics. Yeah, which Whoa, means like pe when people are doing things behind the scenes and people are doing, you know, uh, it's like deliberate exercise of class power that is well, often it's covert. it's more accurate. Right? It's often covert. It's to right. the side of politics. It's to the side of the electoral spectacle or the king on his throne or whatever is going on. But even then, I feel stage. like parapolitics uh, captures that phenomenon more accurately in that mm. conspiracy theory, whereas it's normally covert, parapolitics does happen overtly a lot of times, like say with propagandists yeah. like Alex Jones or even myself with like the Yoded series on the Red Media podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Red Media Patreon. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I feel very much that uh, that yeah. is engaging in parapolitical behavior. And, uh, yeah. you know, when we're talking about, you know, how does things actually affect reality when you say conspiracy theory it kind of just sounds like it's outlandish and not um engaged with material reality whereas in, right. in actuality it's you know abe got offed by a freaking fallout 2 you know mm. shotgun made at radio shack you know uh, here in michigan uh, some people down in a uh, downstate uh like in the lower peninsula uh got killed because their dad was a QAnon. Uh-huh. So he, oh, murdered oh, yeah, his he murdered his family. Yeah, well, right wing, that's the that's a classic counterinsurgency strategy is to make sure that certain elements of uh you know class consciousness and and also ruling class activities actually only get out on the right where nobody knows what to do with that information. Oh, and then another thing so... that does is to to shit coat that for anyone who's on the left to be like, oh, that's the kind of thing only right-wingers talk about. Um, and that was part of the, the literal intent of introducing the term conspiracy theory to discourse is to, they, they actually spell it out. Uh, we want to uh, discredit anyone talking about these things by making them look insane, associating them with all kinds of insane things that are obviously wrong, right? Well, to be fair, and, I think there is a use yeah. in doing that as the left um, for different conversations, right? So things commonly yeah. associated with QAnon, like adrenochrome, right? We want to get mm -hmm. rid of blood libel references. Because mm -hmm. I don't think at any level anybody's drinking the blood of babies, you know? I don't mm. think there is a person in the ruling class monstrous enough to do that in actuality. You know, like even the Bohemian Grove shit. <laughs> well, no, that Bohemian Grove is pretty God. pretty tame, actually, in reality. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's a is play. Not... It's a bunch of plays that in one the is, woods. Yeah. So my listeners will know that I have to interject here. 
I have talked with Shunkmani too about this, and it's an extremely salient topic, and there's a lot more to say, but very quickly, I have three points. Maybe I'll start here. So I have very bad news that in very recent times, the Franklin Credit Union pedophilia ring where, you know, those parties, Poppy Bush was uh, popping in and out of those parties, although maybe not participating in the festivities too much, according to that one thing. But uh, but the victims and perpetrators of that uh, attest that ritual cannibalism and ritual murder were part of what was being partaken in. I take no joy in reporting that many of the victims seem to have been black, indigenous children. And this testimony was only retracted after the victims were literally, their lives were threatened to their faces by the FBI agents that were supposed to be uh, helping them with their, their case. And this is a topic that apparently is mainstream enough that it was taken up on Chapo Trap House. So, uh, yeah, go listen to that if you'd like to learn more. And then if you really want to get into it, you got to listen to Subliminal Jihad's treatment of the Franklin scandal. All right. Um, the Atlanta child murders is another one. That's mostly black children. The perpetrator that was caught specifically said that this was a ring for ritual sexual abuse, murder, and cannibalism which was being run out of a local uh, military base, a real kind of Fort Bragg type situation down there. Fort Bragg, of course, in the news again, as apparently some of them are actually being prosecuted for some of the child trafficking and drug trafficking and crazy, apparently ritual murders that they've been doing on each other and just anything that moves. Back on the Atlanta child murders, then Vice President George H.W. Bush goes down there randomly to make sure that the investigation stays, quote, on track. Uh, another one, the Matamoros cult, that is an anti-communist secret society among white settlers in Mexico. The name means more slayers, uh, quite appropriately, and they practice ritual cannibalism. Both this and the Atlanta child murders, I think the best thing that's out there is programmed to chill. It might be premium episodes, but check that out. And another one would be the Dutroux Affair. You can listen to Ghost Stories for the End of the World. I think their very first episode is about the Dutroux Affair in Belgium. Number two, point number two, this is actually not a new phenomenon, but in fact, one of the oldest phenomena that we see with ruling classes in human history. And the classic cases of this are in the cradle of so-called civilization in the Near East, very prominently. About 12,000 years ago, out of, you know, 200,000 years of human history, or however you want to count, so that's not, it, this is not human nature, but archaeology and anthropology take the presence of ritual cannibalism in elite secret society ritual sites which tend to be very small and, and hidden kind of caves and things, right? It's the original kind of spirit of, of class domination, right? The cannibal spirit, you know? And I think this is the great wisdom of, in fact, a lot of the indigenous societies that uh, are often wrongly accused of be yeah, being cannibals and so on, right? This is the other thing that is taken as a, as a stigma uh, against indigenous communities. But in fact, I would argue that these indigenous communities are the only ones who have found ways to explicitly, as they say, right, tame the cannibal spirit. 
and balance the cannibal spirit. And because that cannibal spirit is there, whether you acknowledge it or not, that's the spirit of class domination. I'm going to fuck and kill and eat uh, the whole world. And this is the source as well of the predatory, patriarchal, colonial sexuality that we see in the Lusiads today. And the societies that have actually mastered it and balanced it out. And you have a, a healthy ecosystem of, of ritual societies and dance societies. And no one group does ever get uh, in control of the surplus and thereby become a ruling class. Right. So that addresses as well the kind of with respect to anti-Semitism as well. You know, this is Keir Starmer logic. This was what was used against Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, well, anti-Semites have said that Jews control the economy. So if you say that capitalists control the economy, well, then you're doing anti-Semitic tropes, right? Aren't you? Right. And of course, we reject that. So I'm very sorry to say that, indeed, ritual cannibalism is real, most of all in the so-called birthplace of civilization and the so-called civilized, feudal and capitalist societies from the evidence that we have. So, um, yeah, that's the cannibal spirit. That's the, that's the wisdom to fight that is, is what we are after in the kingless generation, actually. And it is precisely indigenous societies that have stayed more or less classless that have that wisdom to fight it. So welcome to the kingless generation, my friends. Well, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I stopped at Bohemian Grove when I was on the West mm. Coast, and you can just yeah. go see it. You can just go look at it. It's no big deal. They don't care. As long as nothing's going on, you can go look at it. You yeah. Know? Like, yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's Walter Cronkite, whose voice not only is the stone owl in Bohemian Grove, but if you go huh. to uh, the Trees of Mystery in I, Northern California, uh, right before you get to Eureka, um, those uh, yeah. redwoods, uh, they have a voice that speaks over the, you know, loudspeakers a lot, and uh, I guess it funds Bohemian Grove, the mystery. Oh voice. wow! So I wow. think it's Walter Cronkite who does both sets of voices. Oh, <laughs> could, That's could very well be. Yeah. Um, well, the point is, the ruling class does organize and it does act in its own interest, and for that reason. Looking into parapolitics is a crucial vitamin, I would say. I apologize. I've got mm. literally a workman outside my uh, window doing, uh, putting together a, what do you call it? A scaffold for construction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's awesome. We're going to be, uh, you know, like right on site here for this episode. It's really weird for me because it's going to be very black scenic. outside. So it's like <laughs> quite literally nighttime yeah. now. And for yeah. you, your day is just beginning. <laughs> yeah, this is early morning here in Tokyo. Um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a professor of Japanese literature at a sleepy little university in Tokyo. And yeah, I think parapolitical analysis That's is a fine. crucial vitamin in historical materialism, right? Um, it isn't all just blind market forces, right? Uh, because, you know, we, we want to be an active class force, right? And I, I love your... Uh, saying that, you know, something pa parapolitics is something that we can do and must do, right? We have to have our, what is, a, what is a party, a revolutionary party, if not a kind of secret society and a kind of, right? Well, in our culture, to... we call it a uh, tioshpaye, 
which is a collection cool. of people who share a prayer or a vision. Yep. You know, and to mm-hmm. me, a lot of times organizations, if you're actually forming a cadre as yeah. like a real like fucking ML would, yeah, you know, it should operate more like a secret society in a way, you know, that you're protected mm-hmm. about the information that you, you know, withhold, yeah. withhold from society is a bad way to put it, you know, mm-hmm. but there is well, withhold from the class way. enemy. Withhold from the class enemy is more accurate, exactly. Yeah. So, like, uh, I believe we were having a discussion on, like, probably when we first met about um, the class um, nature within indigenous societies and how much variety there is and how, yeah, um, like, uh, the what was it, um, first settlement down in Virginia? Jamestown, maybe? Jamestown. Mm-hmm. Was that what we were talking about? Something yeah. like what? that. What? Did we talk but, about that? I don't uh, know. <laughs> we were talking about uh, basically just uh, like the way chiefs uh, in that area were asking for sacrifices or like a, a don- donations, if you will, of like meats that hunters would gather. And uh, that seemed to you as a form of like bourgeois, like taxing, you know. I don't remember this. I don't. I don't know if that was me, but let's talk about it oh, now. That was you. Um, yeah, that was you, I think. So let me break in right here. Uh, this is Fergal editing this episode later. Uh, I remembered what it was that Shungmanitu is referring to here in an early message uh, conversation that we had. I recommended, uh, they were asking for things related to fascism, and I recommended James from Prolocult. He did uh, fascism, like something decay. I think it's just called decay about fascism as managed decay. And I didn't even remember that there's this thing in there about, you know, Jamestown and then the indigenous people around there. Also, they were engaged in an exploitative class society, uh, whatever, and, and doesn't really give a lot of any credit to like the Iroquois Confederacy or any of the ways in which actually uh, indigenous societies were, uh, way less exploitative and had a lot to teach Europeans. And they did actually teach Europeans a lot. You know, I would say that's where the enlightenment comes from uh, all in all of this, right. In a European context anyway. So that wasn't me. And I forgot that that was in there and it wasn't the part of it that I wanted to recommend, but it's interesting to see that, yeah, like I was able to just totally tune that out and just not, you know, I don't, I wouldn't agree with that if you put that to me. Um, so that's what that was. I mean, I might be I mischaracterizing what you said, but I don't remember talking about um, Jamestown. I don't actually know anything about it. I don't know if it um, was Jamestown, but we were talking about. But I would expect there to be feasting, right? Yeah, I'd expect there to. Well, I have dealt much more with the Northwest Turtle Island stuff. Um, Kwakwakiwak. Yeah, and like, uh, well, also, Kwakwakiwak are are one of the the potlatch people. Oh, okay, um, okay. Yeah. So like feasting, uh, that sounds like feasting culture, right? Um, Which, as you say, you know, these people who share a common vision, that sounds like a feasting society or dance society. Which would be another name for Well, I'm not just comedy. talking societies at this point. This is broader. Yeah. Um, where like in, in our culture, yeah, completely different setup. You were telling me about this one. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I wasn't sure about the specificities of anything. But um, well, you had the North, yeah, the Hudson Bay Company up there. I don't. Lie Hall was was mostly educating me about this. But um, oh yeah, but this would have been East Coast for sure. Oh okay, yeah. Thing. I don't know too much about that. Um, okay. But that that would kind of bring us to what we were going to maybe we can get into today a little bit, right? I mean, this could easily be part one. Um, I, my impetus for, for sure. <laughs> reaching out to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my impetus for reaching out to you was to discuss real quick, this little, uh, kerfuffle right now about, uh, the black little mermaid. Right. Oh, got yeah, your people. Yeah. Oh, you got... I, I forgot that we have to specify it's black too. I was just gonna yeah. say the new Little Mermaid, but yeah, yeah. it's because well, that's it's the idea. Exactly, that's Little the Mermaid. discourse, right? Yeah, and it's like, should she be black? Should she not? What is she really black? She's not really black. And uh, you literally had a a settler on there saying, "Now we're gonna make, we're gonna own you by making a Malcolm make X movie." White. Oh yeah, yeah make a Malcolm X movie. Oh. Who's white? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I saw Pocahontas. That's white. I saw Malcolm X. That's white. Yeah, uh, I think I saw an MLK Jr. That's white. I'm just like, uh-huh. I mean, I feel like y'all have them. <laughs> yeah, different way. That Black literal person kind of a big thing. Yeah, and the president of Canada literally did what? What a prime minister of Canada literally did blackface. So, no. I think uh, he did. I think yeah. uh, y'all already got that one covered. I don't think you need to do anything <laughs> extra. I think yeah. all of history shows exactly <laughs> why it's okay to do white actors, white roles right. as black roles. I mean, Paul Robeson as Othello is probably one of the more yeah. like a historic versions of this discussion. And it's uh-huh. the same take we're seeing now. Uh, but these people will say they're not racist, whereas the people before would say, you're damn right I'm racist. You know? <laughs> like, oh, I mean, oh, yeah, that's true. There is a certain liberalism on the right now, and that's really interesting. And, and that's kind of what's motivating this. Like, we want our uh, whatever, you know? Uh, but well, the, the big thing is uh, yeah. there's a coalition of like militia movements and patriotic movements, a lot of KKK members uh, yeah. <laughs> that got together in 93 or 92, oh. uh, right before uh, Clinton's elected, whatever, whenever mm-hmm. that's, I don't remember what year that was, but right. um, whenever Clinton's elected, a bunch of them got together and was like, we need to stop being so racist. Uh-huh. And that's why they went quiet for a while, and now they're coming uh-huh. back out because Trump was elected. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not a new thing. You, the further you look back, the more you realize, like, oh, there was just a little quiet spell, like basically when I was a kid, and like, yeah, right Literally. before that, I, and even was... then, I grew yeah, up in a mega yeah. church, and it was oh. racist as shit, racist oh. as fucking shit. My grandpa mm-hmm. ran that church. You know, mm. so you think first off we would be hooked up. Nah, nah. He built wow. a big old house, but my dad was like the black sheep of the family, so it was fuck him. He's lucky he gets oh, any help, sucks. you know? Yeah, yeah. And that was like after my mom, who's the native, lost custody. But uh so th- this is a oh, white no. dude we're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, and I see. This man shook George Bush Jr.'s oh. hand. 
So at here the we are. Oh, okay. Okay. The National yeah. Prayer Breakfast or whatever. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. He Probably. shook his fucking hand at that shit. And I was like, Pancakes what the? Or something. Yeah. I'm thinking about this shit now and I'm like, what the actual fuck? That man is oh, a no, mass yeah. murderer. I mean, uh-huh. a horrible, horrible person. And my grandpa, who I would call oh, of course. the perfect Christian, according yeah. to evangelical Christians, you know. But yeah. here he is shaking a warmonger's hand, raising millions of dollars for fucking missionaries, probably bringing mm-hmm. CIA stuff into the fucking countries they work in. Like, uh, mm-hmm. my grandpa went on a missions trip when China first allowed missionaries into the country. Oh, you know, no so war, like, but the class the war. First, the class yeah, war if you're is one on. of the first missionaries there, I yeah. think there was a CIA stooge with you. You know, mm-hmm. I just think there is just at this point. because I would. Too. I know how fucking history actually works. You shook the fucking devil's hand. You, you yeah. shook the devil's hand as a pastor and you think you're a good person. You know, uh, our church put on plays. I forget what they named us, but it was the most racist fucking native names you could have come up with. Because oh, you, for some reason, our play actual like the... native names, it's not asking us to play Indian. You're asking us to be ourselves. But you won't let us have our names because you're so racist. You think we're removed from your idealized version of the past. It's like I grew up putting up teepees. I grew up sleeping in a log cabin without any fucking electricity under an elk hide. You know, like, yeah, I, I, I don't know how to explain it to people, but it's like colonialism wasn't that long ago. Okay, my aunt, who's 42, was in a boarding school. Still going on, a lot of reasons, yeah. Well, uh, well, but, I mean, getting that through to people is that it's still going on. They're like, you're really, you're really stretching for it, you know? And it's like, I don't think I am, but, you know, Uh, uh, if we look back to 30 years ago, you know? (laughs) I mean, you had a Yellow Thunder Camp, which was a move to produce a green indigenous um, locale, I'll say. But I mean, it was a town. It was a city that uh, was the largest population center on my reservation for a second, uh, and it was because well, not really on my reservation. It's uh, in Rapid City, but it's close enough to the reservation that it was just becoming like a reclamation of land. It took the feds uh, shooting some guns within the camp, and then for some reason, my uncle Russ ran off with a bunch of money from the donations after working with the Contras. I don't, I, I wonder who's oh. a federal agent. Oh. I wonder who's a federal agent. Well, there you who, go. Who could be the plant? I don't know. Only the yeah. leader. Shit. I mean, that's quite the accusation. If you look in the right the place, contract. there's all kinds of stuff going on. Well, class, so like my uncle warfare Leo is right there in front of us. My uncle Leo is talking about around this time, and yeah, some dudes from Kosovo talking about the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo came to the Sundance in Wind Cave. I've only ever met white supremacist Kosovoian patriots, you know? Oh. So I'm wondering if, like, this this is, like, the connection in history. I don't know how I'd find um, that out, but if you know, message me at bandsofturtleisland at gmail.com. <laughs> hit him up. Yeah. But, yeah, so, uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, Little Mermaid besides that. Yeah, time. yeah. So that actually leads right into where this actually goes for me. So you, I reached out to you because 
I realized, so I also do a lot with Portuguese stuff. And okay. oh, that yeah, is, you mentioned yeah, the Portuguese literature, right? So like there is an epic poem that's written kind of in the style of Virgil, lauding all the accomplishments of the Portuguese uh, discoverers, quote unquote. And uh, it's, it's written by Luís Vaz de Camões, who is a explorer, drug dealer, um, probably a rapist, and uh, quite a, an adventurer. You know, an adventurer. And, That's an impressive resume. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to be a drug dealer. In, in any given society, the, it, the ruling class controls the drug trade. That is axiomatic. Well, even um, then, if you're a drug dealer, that's just a sign of a well-rounded person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. I was a drug dealer um, once upon a whether time. Whether you control the trade, well, whether you control the trade or not, I think he was maybe one of the ones who was really controlling the incipient. Right, yeah, he had like stocks in the opium trade. You know? He's moving around. Like, oh yeah, I got 14 papers that say I own part of the Dutch East Indian Company. <laughs> yeah, that is the whole exactly. Um, so he then writes this epic poem uh, uh, in which, you know, it's, it's a weird kind of mixture between classic sort of Christian triumphalism, Catholic triumphalism. You know, we defeat, we're defeating the, the Muslims, right? And God is on our sure. side, you know, the God of Christianity. But also he's, told, he's doing this Aeneid thing, right? Like Virgil. So he's got uh, this whole, you know, all the Greek gods out again. And this is really the moment. And, and uh, Luis Vaj de Camões, the author of the Lusiads, which um, Lusias, that's another name for uh, Portugal, right? So it's like the epic oh, okay. poem of Portugal. Those were the papers you sent me in email. The Adventures of the Portuguese, yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he's mainly talking about Vasco da Gama rounding the Cape of Africa and getting into the Indian Ocean for the first time, discovering all those trade routes that are existing there. You know, this is the, the Silk Road economy that existed from, uh, you know, the Abbasid Caliphate is trading with uh, Song, China, and well, but it wasn't uh, even the dynasty Silk Road. India. You're, talking, uh, you're talking like, uh, you know, like even ocean trades with this yeah it's maritime like maritime indian ocean trade i, I guess yeah yeah um, like as the alternative to the silk road the portuguese pursued colonies that way in order to uh, provide an alternative that's technically quicker well maritime south asia road was yeah maritime south asia existed from the abbasid caliphate and um gupta dynasty india and and song dynasty china and uh, oh, wow. was was around first, and the Portuguese only. I took never this realized over. they were that extended, yeah. though. Holy yeah, shit. yeah! I have an episode on Abu Zaid as Sirafi, um, and I'm like, still getting Fudland. caught up with your your podcast yeah, is yeah, like no, the new one on the block. So it's like the last in the list for every episode oh, I listen to, and I'm I feel the, bad now because I'm like, I'm this little monkey. You're interesting. At the side of the tree, you know, we were discussing earlier, you know, I've been li the listening thing to is, bands of Turtle Island forever. Yeah. Well, so my mycelium, though, grows mm. for a long time underneath the surface, and it begins to sprout. There was this, I wish I could remember the piece I read on it, but it described revolution like mycelium. And oh. I've never, like, seen a more accurate description. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's forever. It's one of those things 
when you're talking about like an immortal science, right? A lot of people dismiss it as a joke. But to me, yeah. an immortal science tries to encapsulate this idea that you don't necessarily need the readings. Yeah. To understand how capitalism oppresses us. You know, you only need to live within the system itself to come to those conclusions, but putting them into words tends to be the difficulty of the lump in proletariat or the possible reactionary proletariat, like say with the patriotic socialist movement. Um, those people, they want to do good if they're real people. You know, there yeah, might be yeah. bots or something behind that movement or some shit like that. Like, uh, yeah, Operation Signature Reduction. A lot of people are misguided. Is, well, Operation Signature Reduction is just such a yeah broad, um, I mean, COINTELPRO, yeah. basically. Because uh, that's another catch-all. It's one of these terms that's a catch-all. It's not an actual thing. You know, if you so- sued FOIA for anybody, you'd never find Operation Signature Reduction. Well, they did yeah. a whole article on it in Newsweek, and they said that it's 60,000 people. So there's 60,000 right. well, people. That, so they're yeah. describing an overarching Even idea. Foy- and Foy- even in that article, that article. It would be those 60,000. Yeah. Well, no, they conflate um, Pentagon. So it's 60,000 people for the Pentagon. Yeah, that's just the official. The CIA is doing stuff like this. They mentioned the FBI mm. is doing stuff like that. And the catch-all is Operation Signature Reduction. That's and not probably every mercenary uh, military contractor is doing oh. it off the books. Well, yeah, exactly. Or even then, uh, reservists, you know, like people who, yeah. you know, might have been some sort of uh, asset to the state at some point that, right. though retired, can be called back on for their loyalty for whatever reason. I mean, it, it's like, uh, it's a lot of Mockingbird stuff. Like, if you don't know what Operation Mockingbird yeah. is, uh, it's where they implanted people into the media and, like, uh, movies in order to spread propaganda. You know, you can almost see, like, Reagan is probably a good example of that, though we don't have oh, yeah. evidence of it. You know, um, Anderson Cooper had a, a what's it called, a, a internship with the CIA, and then all of a sudden is one of the mm-hmm. number one newscasters on fucking television um nope. that's a little nope. suspicious um which yeah there's people who look into each of, of those and there's real information that they have i'm not i'm right. not i don't have it holstered and ready to go myself but yeah i i don't either necessarily but i do know that it's that out is there. a factual piece of information yeah and i do know that i can warn people that right-wingers do attempt to co-opt factual pieces mm-hmm. of information to bolster their right-wing conspiracies that's supposed yeah, to distract, yeah. dismiss, and disparage the left by association. Mm-hmm. And you mislead know, all those say. people, you know, and those people who are out there, there may be some uh, that have good faith, right? And can be right. uh, reached in some kind of way. You know, what I would really like to, I guess the point I would really want to hit is like our game here, if you're an organizer, our task is not to decide who are the people who are branded correctly and who, and who are, you know, it's, I think a lot of people get into liberal branding consciousness rather than dialectical materialist communist consciousness. Well, and so the past socialists do try to bring up a critique of them, but because of their mm. stupidity, you know, so to say, in, in so many places that they're wrong with their analysis, yeah. that piece is missed. You know, 
Mm-hmm. When we look at the right wing, we often throw out whatever they say, but we're not trying to analyze the contradictions that they're expressing because we might assume we know. But even like I was mentioning that 93 get together, you know, the reason why they mm-hmm. want to be less racist is because they realize a lot of white people are more impacted by economic anxiety and that can be channeled into racism. And if we give that channeling to the racists rather than trying to channel it ourselves differently, we're going to lose a big battle with people with money that can donate. Too many of us are poor and we need money in these movements again. That was the big thing in the 70s and 80s is that they actually had a middle class support and had people who were sympathetic to donate to the cause. Because... If you have a bunch of poor people, sure, you have the numbers, uh-huh. but numbers uh-huh. don't mean anything if you can't actually mobilize those people because you can't. Well, for one thing, you need well, to and you, and you mainly, may, well, you know, mainly I think you want to just get your salary as a party uh, strategist, right? Or grifter, right? I wouldn't There's even say a salary. Well, I wouldn't even say like going for a salary. I would say that literally yeah. with organizing. You know, the big guys have endless money, of course. Oh, you know? for sure. But the like, real uh, operatives like, have the drug money. They have, you know, like you're talking about Iran Contra. Um, yeah, right. They well, don't have I, to I like mean, get like with, money from donors, but yeah, it's well. I mean, with leftists, like we should be looking at finding a way to appeal to the middle class in a way, but not in a way maybe. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wouldn't say appeal to them. I would say we need yeah. to find a way to bring them into our side. I don't want to appeal yeah. to them. I want to convince them that they are wrong and that we yeah. are right. That they yeah. support us instead. You know, yeah, I think communists becoming middle-class sympathizers should be middle-class people becoming communist no. sympathizers. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm doing a reading right now of Lenin's What is to be Done in the new translation by Lars Lee. That's on a separate feed. It's just, you know, um, Lenin's What is to be Done in the Lars Lee translation. And he's specifically arguing against some people who were saying we should only talk to workers, only workers, only workers, right? And it's perfect for this barista who is a real worker. Is it baristas, truckers, oh. farmers, all this shit, right? Who is branded properly that we can support them, which mostly means just posting and mostly means like, you know, putting up this or that flag, you know, it's all symbolic. Right. It's all well, you branding. have two camps there, right? You have the yeah. ultra leftists, and then you have um, the patriotic socialists who co opts the ultra leftist position into an ultra rightist position. You know, Those both are, are deviations. Two, yeah. Paired you know? uh, puppets squawking at each other. And exactly. Uh, yeah. We need to just look. Lenin, we need to listen to Lenin, which is politicize, agitate to all classes of society, all classes. He does not say only workers. He says not just every level of society. You have an argument that you can make why communism is better. Well, and them. so that's a perfect transition into my critique of these two people is they misrepresent every level of society to say that we should be engaging in, well, with the ultra leftists, a lot of the time it's left punching. With the Pat Socias, it's they want to uh, uh, engage with the federal election system. Mm. Which, yes, it says we should run our own candidates under our own parties. Mm. But in America, doing that on the federal level means nothing. 
doing it on a state level or a municipal level, that's actually going to engage fascists where they are organizing. That is the actual plan they have, is to engage at school boards, to become council members at the city level, to become Mm. policemen, to become police chiefs, etc. That's where they're aiming at our rights on the grassroots Mm. level. The the politicians within the right on the federal level, that's a sideshow to them, and they can recognize that and engage in it in a way far more effectively than the left. And at every level of society, the left is being outmaneuvered by the right. And we need to understand that and get on board with actual fucking left unity that doesn't compromise people's organizing. Left unity doesn't mean we need to all agree on the same shit. It means we need to agree that the right wing and capitalism is worse and let's fucking dissolve it first before arguing, you know, fuck. Mm -hmm. Well, so I was going to say this, this is where it's really good to look, have the parapolitics vitamin because you can look into the history of someone like Kingston Jackalford or whoever the fuck and see that he started out in like, uh, you know, one of the Pat Soaps. Oh, Hinkle. You know? So he uh, he literally started out doing school shootings and then he goes to whatever and then he just veers from this thing to this thing and he's he's always on the bus doing his whatever his handlers are telling him to do. And he he tries to take the best obvious bed. So to say, but it's whatever's popular and being talked about is the only thing he talks about. And that shit gets seeded from accounts that you know you can analyze and you can see this is a deliberate action here. Right. Um, so when those people that tells you that, OK, it's equivocal, unequivocally not a good thing if these people get in charge of local school boards and stuff, because they're going to turn around mm-hmm. and be, uh, you know, literal. Uh, well, and I would fascists. say, yeah, I would say the communists, quote unquote, the fascists posing as communists mm-hmm. um, are the best case scenario. Yeah. You know, oh, they're not going to there are much. Right well, there are much worse you know, people like QAnoners or like uh, uh, sovereign citizens. You know, imagine if a sovereign citizen's your local sheriff. He literally thinks he's the supreme law of the land. He yeah. literally thinks he's the power of the king. You know, we don't have kings. We don't yeah. have fucking kings. And this motherfucker's like, yeah, I have the same power right. as the king. Well, it's they, like, you know, there's dominionist uh, theology out there. There's some... Um... Well, and it is a classic thing for settler militias to be given uh, power to, you know, rage against various minority groups, right? Uh, (laughs) That's classic kind of uh, settler economy, right? You put people out on the frontier and they get, you know, certain special privileges like that to be violent, right? And that's, that's the bargain. I think that's a good transition into, you know, mermaids and discussion. Mermaids, Uh, yeah. uh, What we we want to discuss it is that we want to discuss it from a material position, right? Uh, Exactly. This is what was occurring uh, to me. Yeah, like everybody's talking about. So, should is is she originally black or not? And you literally had one of these people uh, who could not. Is this a bot? trying to create a, a viral moment, I, I wonder. Uh, but they were saying, you know, Malcolm X was a real historical character, someone's trying to point out, okay? 
uh, a mermaid is a fictional character. And they're like, was there or was there not a Disney movie in 1989 called The Little Mermaid in history? And they couldn't get it. <laughs> and <laughs> they really wanted to say that, that that's real because a character appeared on a screen. But, you know, and that... But really, if you want to... in defense of that dumb joke? The Malcolm that's X in defense of the white Wild. Malcolm X. Yeah, that's why that makes sense, um, according to one of these people. Um, but if you really oh. want to trace it, right, we're looking at the Lusiads. We're looking at this is, you know, uh, the image of the mermaid comes from a lot of uh, Portuguese, Spanish, English. I have stuff well, about the English. Well, I would argue that Japan a lot of cultures have the idea of a mermaid, right? Like a yeah. human that turns into an aquatic creature that does something to perhaps lure sailors in or what have you. You know, there's a lot of variations on this, but they interact with humanity in some way. Um, right. And not a god, necessarily a, god, they... a figure that represents the dangers of the sea in general. Well, exactly. Yeah. It's this folklore that's trying to represent the dangers and positivities of water a lot of times. So yeah. like, uh, uh, you know, you have Greece, but like uh, more specifically, uh, you know, Greece, you have uh, the common conflation to the siren, right? But in reality, yeah. when you look at like Argonauts or um, Odyssey, you know, you, Odyssey. you have uh, yeah. well, both are the only places you really see the sirens, right? But they're right. bird women. You know, right. oftentimes I have a head of a woman and then a body of a bird. Yeah. Um, but in well, the Argonaut, you actually, yeah. well, yeah, yeah. In, the, in the Argonaut, you actually see um, the trident or, you know, uh, 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 the, uh, what's it called? Tridenti. Uh, like, yeah. I guess I wouldn't know how to turn that trident into a human word. Tridentian. You know, <laughs> I forget what they say in the Argonaut. But, um, well, no, uh, it, it's the term for a half fish, half human being, much more like a mermaid Triton? in ancient Greece that uh, oh, okay. is named after uh, the son of Poseidon, who's out of Poseidon uh, mm -hmm. and then his mother, Amphorite. Amphorite. Um, Trident is the only one who's always explicitly depicted as half fish, half human in the classic mermaid form, which All is right. really where you can track mermaids in the Greek tradition to that specific. But in the Argonaut, you see that with um, uh, a fisherman named Gork, Gorkon, Gorko, some fucking stupid right. shit like that. Um, yeah. But uh, he finds a herb that turn, brings fish back to life, and then he's like, What's this do to humans? So he eats it himself, and then he gets fucking legs of fish. What well, like a oh, he becomes a, a, a fish tail. Oh, it turns into fishy. <laughs> yeah. Legs of fish. <laughs> oh wow! See, I don't know shit about that. It's like a Monty Python fucking yeah. picture. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, so like, uh, so this is the ancient you know, Greek. The, the, you know, this is when like they're fishermen, and the economic base of that society is very much. Um, exactly and yeah, a lot of times people. it's about people drowning in the water you know yeah like, oh why do these people drown it's well we don't know what riptides are we don't know we didn't know really what an undertow was you know we had mm -hmm. ideas mm -hmm. of a current but we didn't quite understand it to its fullest because right. we're talking about some of the earliest recorded knowledge 
in writing right. of this kind of stuff. But across well, the world, the Greeks aren't that old when it comes to writing. But yeah, well, yeah, Greeks aren't but, shit really. I mean, but you're, compared you're right. to my culture, very old. Your culture is <laughs> very old. Right? What your culture is my much culture. older. No, but my culture didn't have writing until very recently. Well, our, our writing system doesn't come until colonization. Yeah. So yeah. it quite lit in our colonizations within the last 150 years. So right. you're talking about a very recent you had... colonization. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, well, but uh, you know, all of official... these cultures have stories about like, you know, scary forces out in nature. That's been a feature of our uh, human societies since long before we were homo sapiens. You know, that's there. We're talking about scales of like millions of years in all likelihood. Right. But um, right. The, Having the stories like that. Depiction... Yeah, of a half woman, half fish that um, lures people into the water, um, specifically yeah. like a hot lady. The, yeah, we really see that come from like Polish tradition, actually, um, or like Slavics in general. With the, uh, I mean, you're, if you're a Slavic mm. listener, roast me. But Rosalka. Uh, oh wow! <laughs> All right, who, who dwell in like water sources and lure um, young men to their death, and are claimed to be the spirits of women who died of drowning due to like a bad relationship, or mm. like uh, a murder, or like an unwanted pregnancy, suicide, mm. etc. Um, and they weren't necessarily evil, but rather the spirit of fertility who would walk amongst the plants and fertilize them even. And like uh, when they wow. lured you to their deaths in certain traditions, they have like specific ways in which they kill you. Some like their hair wraps around you and pulls you down. But in yeah. Poland, they tickle you to death. Hey, I just thought right. that was a fun, fun, fun one to bring up. That might be a euphemism too. I'm wondering. Yeah. But I'll, oh, yeah, maybe. They, but <laughs> okay. So this is this is fascinating stuff. Okay, this is all, and we're in yeah, like so, maybe feudal mode of production kind of thing. Right, a lot of this stuff is, or just maybe just hunter-gatherer, pastoralist too. Well, right. you have the original like conversation beginning with the in the West, at least with the Odyssey and the Argonauts. But I would say they're yeah. influenced by the Babylonian cultures, which also have like a goddess mm -hmm. that's half fish, half women. You know, they have oh, their own know. stories of people being drowned by fishes. Um, and really, this goes all over. Like uh, even in Japan. Yeah. Um, uh, you might be able to speak more accurately to uh, the the near Nero Nero Nero. Uh, I don't know about people. that. Oh well, no. there's this um, there's this uh, creature that's just the head of a human on like a mm -hmm. thirty five foot body of like a fish or serpent. That wow. like uh, you know, a lot of these stories are just mm -hmm. like the embodiment of like patriarchal domination um, mm. or like uh, misogyny, you know, uh, manifesting mm -hmm. like the revenge or vengeance against misogyny being expressed in folklore, which is oftentimes held. Well, by that's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of no plays like Aoi no Ue or something where a woman's jealous spirit comes in as a demon or something or a snake. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A and so snake like the Nero is a, is a like, frequent. The Nero had like golden horns and like a red belly or some shit like that. Like I don't know what huh? significance those symbols mean. You know, this isn't necessarily like my forte, necessarily. Yeah. 
No, I don't know. I mean, that could be like nyoro. Nyoro nyoro is is like a onomatopoeic word which could be used for the movement of a snake, right? Um, oh, really? But yeah, I don't happen to know about this. Maybe that's taken from a certain Edo period uh, catalog of monsters and ghosts and stuff. That was a popular I would imagine that was the art style is Edo period, yeah. but I'm With not like prints, an expert on any of this that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's But like, I don't either. know these things yeah. to your level and it's clear that I'm touching on stuff that all. you don't know. You know, nope. I don't know. So about it. it makes That's me feel. Great. Thank you for proud teaching me that, that I'm bringing something yeah. to this. You know, <laughs> um, but like uh, the Little Mermaid, sure. it, you. you know, is is another one of those stories mm. that um, serves mm. to provide a mystification or right. a oral tradition, even arguably. Yeah. I mean, once you put into animation, it's a little different. You know, so just. Yeah. The movies are a whole new world, right? Right, right. <laughs> to quote yeah. another Disney movie. But... Right. Well, it's part of that world. It's, it's yeah, this is a sec. I wanted, I would come in then, I think after this and say there's another level to that then, right? Well, I would say Where that the Little Mermaid, right? Has settler colonialism. Level of misogyny. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Yeah. We're going to go all the way there. So, yeah. Well, no, but it does have misogyny. That's right. Should we hit that first? Um, yeah, the song. Well, I was going to say of, with the original story. Part of your world. Ooh, let's go with the Disney. Yeah. yeah. The Disney one, yeah, is very much about post-war suburban picket fence kind of housewife existence and why you should accept it and why you should become a housewife. Uh, For real. Yeah. And then the real story is about... Our family. I, yeah. Well, I would say unrealistic sacrifice of the woman Right. Yeah. So you've been talking about the classical, a kind of classical myth, right? That goes back the ancient myth la- layer, right? Maybe we should put well, a bow then, on that. But, yeah. But but like uh, with the mermaids, like we can jump yeah. into uh, what we wrote a bunch of the uh, fairy tales that we know and love today. Um, <laughs> I forget his name. But Hans Christian Andersen's about- version in Denmark, I yeah. guess, is kind of like yeah, Hans Christian well Andersen. That's the one I was thinking of. He's the original author, and it's a much more grotesque story, right? Yeah, that too is, mo- you know, that's that's getting to be early modern, isn't it? I don't remember. Yeah, dates, no, that's but, yeah. like, uh, y- you would put that in a contemporary work with, like, Charles Dickens, at least, you know? 19th century? Okay. So, yeah, yeah so we're in industrial capitalism, there. actually, already. Yeah, his was... Pro- just slightly prior to that, but you're talking... You know, yeah. there's not a lot of new books that take the world by storm. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's one of those that are like, oh, hey, it lives in the memory of Europe, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's the thing. It, it has this, the thing that occurs to me about this, this discourse, right, is that, you know, should she be black, should she not? Um, actually, originally, she is <laughs> the real figures that... Um, you know, after the, the the reason why the mermaid image is so prevalent in our modern culture is actually that the early modern uh, European conquistadors uh, going around, exp- they imagined the indigenous women that they were encountering and the un-European, un-Christian uh, sexual relations that they were experiencing uh, in, in the best cases. In the worst cases, they were just going around raping people. But uh, 
in the best cases, I mean, in they almost were, all cases, they were going yes. around raping people. Unfortunately, yeah, exactly. I mean, I keep phrasing this. I don't have statistics or anything, but I'm pretty sure it's the fucking majority of the time they're just rolling up well, on women. There's this As classic story. In this, well, yeah, Lucy El- ads, right? Elizabeth Warren, right? She says her family's an Indian princess, and that's like the big thing uh, I'd draw to, right? Yeah. The Indian princess is the same thing as the mermaid. Yeah. You know? And the oh, very yeah. fact that the little mermaid is a princess in the Disney movie. Yeah. Is speaking to a collective consciousness that we often see easily within horror movies. Mm. But you can see the same thing within these children's movies. You can see the yeah. same thing within family movies that are supposed to um, replicate. Uh, that familiar superstructure within a settler colonial society, right? Yeah. In that song, part of that world, you know, I mean, uh, I remember in grad school teaching a class once that that was an assigned reading that the professor in charge of it assigned. And we were discussing it from a feminist perspective, pointing out all the ways that it (laughs) is sexist, right? Uh, But actually, I realized, her being white is the only thing that protects that from being it, it, the only thing that keeps that being only sex instead mm-hmm. of opening all of these indigenous colonial issues. Right. Well, right. So in the yeah. journals of colonizers, they would say, you know, I was mesmerized by the mermaids of whatever Island I was invading and pillaging, yes. you know, and it's poetic, but they're drawing on those same traditions that are rooted in, you know, misogyny and patriarchy, you know, and replicating them on real people, you know? So it's not just a story. It becomes reality that mermaids exist and mermaids aren't a half fish, half person. Rather, it's a half person to (laughs) a settler that views them as a sexual object. That is right. human, but is more than, say, a pocket pussy for vulgar context. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it puts them, because it puts them in this wonderful Aeneid, you know, uh, or uh, Odyssey, or Argonaut. Literally, in the Lusiads, Camoench calls them, you know, the new Argonaut. It makes them those yeah. adventurers. You, He's drawing uh, yes, on you that. you put it yeah. earlier. Yeah. Adventurer. I get to be that, that adventurer. Idea. Yeah. Well, and even then, you have like groups like a uh, South Park referenced uh, a real group of white men usually that go around to other countries and fuck children. Mm. That's what That's they do. Real. I can't remember yeah. the name. They were like the Extreme Adventure Club or some shit like that. But they call themselves adventurers oh, because they were South fucking Park? kids. Yeah. Uh, well, this is South Park playing on real facts. Yeah, which is something that they do well. Yeah, but it's from a reactionary point of view, so it misses Mm -hmm. a lot of important context. Once, once again, we have kind of yeah, right wing populist culture leading people astray. Right. Right. Well, it's it's the working class nature of it that leads them to correct analysis, but the right wing nature of that analysis leads them to the incorrect analysis. Just because they don't have those aspects of dialectical materialism or historical materialism, because it's not pushed in their communities. You know, they push for whatever narratively works. Yeah. You know, and we fall into those traps a lot of times as the left, Mm -hmm. you know. You do so much great work with settlers 
you know, I got to hand it to you. That's not, I, I, you know, people talking in other contexts to, uh, you know, left. I, 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 I have to be clear that I'm not, I would never sort of say it's your job, right? As an indigenous person right. to go talk to settlers. It's my fucking job. And I wouldn't say it is my job. I would say it is a settler's job. Yeah. But I do think yeah. I do a good job at understanding because I have to. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to mm-hmm. see my family be socialists and yeah. support a revolution that I'm a part of, you know, in whatever capacity. You know, I want to see them be on my side than see them sell me out. Because my right. uncle back in like 93 or something like the 94 um, was having a Sundance where the FBI put it to a stop and accused him of forming a militia and yeah, having bazookas. Yeah. And so they flew strategic bombers overhead and shit like that. And the people wow. who told the FBI that yeah. shit were his family. So I know very specifically how much a role the family plays in the colonial structure that you need to be assured your family is on the same page with you if you're going to be speaking to them about these things because there's not a whole lot of people you can trust besides family in this society. And if you can't trust your family, you're literally fucked. This is a this is a thing that I, I one of my thing you know I, oh this is a huge topic and I don't want to get too deep into it but uh, anthropology and archaeology it's all interconnected it's true the web is expanding uh, Indra's net Indra's net every point is connected to every other point uh, the anthropology archaeology of uh, trans egalitarian societies right you have uh, these dance societies feasting societies and so on. Uh, and it's out of these, uh, particularly we can see in the Near East, that you have uh, cults of human sacrifice and cannibalism growing, uh, and they will go and uh, eventually appoint chiefs, usually from among their lowest ranking members, so that they can still control the chief, right, and, mm-hmm. and the king. And we see uh, temple bureaucracies growing. This is, you can see this in right. Egypt. You can see, I'm talking about Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. I'm talking about oh, Sheriff Al-Ahmar in Syria, right? We can see all these things. I don't growing. know a lot about Gobekli Tepe besides ancient alien shit, so. <laughs> yeah, so, so this is the real deal. This is real uh, anthropology and archaeology, right? As colonial as it often is when we're sort of drawing on information from, you know, Pacific Islanders and Turtle Island people and Plains people and, right? Uh, yourself. This is kind of part of this story, right? Uh, but you have these secret societies and they predate. So my, my point here is I have this thing where I advocate uh, maybe we should think about what would a paleo-Leninism look like, right? Uh, Ooh, interesting. Because you have a people's army, right? A gun is a dangerous thing. An army is a dangerous thing, right? Uh, even more powerful, though, you know, if you're a Leninist, you're out, you, you want to be asking, what weapons does the ruling class have? What do they do? How can we get those weapons to and use them on behalf of the working class, right? Well, I would say a way org answered that wrong is the Shining Path. Um, mm. People, they, uh, they used all kinds of ways that, as a yeah. method, like a tool, you know, that the bourgeoisie have, but perhaps maybe a proletarian movement. Mm shouldn't rely yeah. on torture 
besides on the soldiers of the bourgeoisie or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's going to be all kinds of dangerous things and people go wrong in every different direction, right? That's true of the people's army. Um, but still, you know, I think you would agree we need a people's army. Um, exactly. Right. And there will I'm just be saying some we need to be military aware component to, to uh, eventual uh, transition. I always say in Japanese, you know, you talk about Seiken Kotai is, is uh, what do you call it? Change in government, change in the administration, right? But I would say Seisan Kanke Kotai. Um, that's my neologism, a, a change in the relations of production, right? Hmm. Is more what we need. And for that, right, um, you might start thinking, okay, they have police, they have bands of armed men, right? Um, but archaeology and anthropology tell us that before the bands of armed men, you have a dance society, you have a feasting society, mm -hmm. right? They have all these deep, deeply meaningful human rituals of initiation, right? And uh, these were used for millions of years for our ancestors to foster absolute loyalty to the group, right? When you're on the savanna in Africa, you can't have, um, you know, somebody, uh, it's one of the most free, free uh, societies and egalitarian societies, um, you know, the most that has ever existed. But uh, at the same time, you know, they have fierce loyalty to the group and fierce sense of fairness and egalitarianism that we see in every, all the data, right? And, uh, and this, right. these rituals and things are a big part of that. Right. But then in some and only some cases, that becomes the basis of the first ruling classes. Now, in other cases, you have indigenous societies that continue to be egalitarian. But when you think about us, right, that kind of wisdom, that kind of um, community uh, traditions, right, is there some way that that can be used to strengthen party organization, right? It's a well, big I, box I would of say dangerous. 100%. Yeah, you could go wrong, but yeah. You could go but right. I would say 100%. It's definitely the direction to go because it's one of those things that it depends on the class characteristic, right? As a material. Yeah. It depends on who is in control of the levers of power from a yeah. proletarian perspective. So, like uh, in our culture, chiefs are, you know, uh, agreed upon by, you know, majority. You know, it's democratic mm -hmm. vote that designates them. And then uh, our chiefs are considered like socially, you know, you don't have to give away, but you are considered a good chief if you do not own everything. So in our society, it becomes, you know, if you're a servant of the people as a leader, then it's culturally more acceptable as a leader. Whereas opposing societies, like say in Europe, you know, it's more about how much gold you have. Or yeah. you can look at my own society once settlers come into the picture and horses are on the United States land. Then we become a sort of uh, horse lord society in which uh, the primitive accumulation starts becoming how many horses you can steal and hoard. You know, yeah. No one family needs 50 horses, but if you have 50 horses, it's a status symbol because you've stolen those from colonists, but it has a use within the tribe. I see. That's a confusing material condition yeah. to be, right? Well, and that's the point at which a lot of the anthropologists come in and start doing the ethnographies too. So half the time what they're recording is like, you know, 
a bag of kittens about to be thrown in a river, you know, and like they're they're trying <laughs> to draw conclusions about what the nature of kittens and how do they well, normally that's live. the beauty about my culture is so much of it is so recent that the anthropologists have been involved at every step of the way. So it's, oh, you have a lot yeah. of writings okay. available on yeah. this. Like the Mi'kmaq language is preserved specifically due to the anthropological work of the church and preserving that language for the church's uses. Right. However, the language rules are preserved in that way so that the tribe can relearn their language after losing it. Um, mm. Ours never fell to that position, but that's like one of the realities of being indigenous within this country, right? Um, right. For my tribe, it's very different just because we are like uh, uh, the Wounded Knee Massacre happens the year before the census officially closes the Western frontier. Um, mm -hmm. After my tribe's conquered, my nation's conquered, uh, that's when the census finally says, hooray, the West has been conquered, you know, and that's because we were the last major power. Anybody left is uh uh an anomaly so to say you know mm -hmm. like uh i'm not sure if anybody even happens after us i know for a fact that we are the last massacre of the indian world so it's just you know after that it goes into uh uh what's it called allotment and then the Dawes act etc but these are all things that are you know reminiscent of the same social structures that affected uh the so-called mermaids that are real mm -hmm. you know? right right and you can find that i mean this issue goes across the board uh in the colonized world uh part of the the particular portuguese style of colonialism it's interesting that intermarriage uh they were known as the casados the mm -hmm. the married men uh, so they didn't bring Portuguese women along. The English didn't bring English women along. Uh, well, that's they really weren't bringing the women in most settler colonial colonies, right? Like uh, up here in Michigan, yeah. a lot of the strip clubs that still exist are like the original mm -hmm. strip clubs and brothels settlers set up when first coming to this area so long ago. Okay. Isn't that crazy? Like that's wow. old institutional fucking prostitution. That's probably actually, yeah, I was going to say there's somebody who's, there's a great tweet um, from Parapolitics Twitter uh, where, which, which again, one thing I wanted to say is that that is a segment that I find to be one of the most receptive of my, uh, you know, my people, the settlers, right? <laughs> uh, and that's why I spent some time there. But, you know, they were saying, if you don't believe that anyone can do a conspiracy, it's too hard to keep a secret. Uh, just look into local real estate deals. Anything to sure. do. And you will find uh -huh. many, many conspiracies where people conspired and cheated and they kept it secret. The most and, yeah. <laughs> real example of a local real estate conspiracy becoming even larger is um, the Missouri Valley River Group, who uh, managed um, the development of the Pick Sloan plan which is mm -hmm. uh, what Vine Deloria Jr. calls the single most destructive act perpetrated against any indigenous community. Uh, he didn't say indigenous. He said mm -hmm. Indian, obviously. But, you know, the sentiment is there. And uh, he, they built five dams. And um, this is basically how the conversation went. 
uh, about a month before the dam was finished, they they finally wrote a letter to the tribal councils, the second ever tribal council established in the United States. Okay, they finally write a letter. To, okay, and they say, this is more to inform you of the events that are to occur, not a policy in which you should adopt. This is supposed to help you in planning for the future and the consequences, basically, of what's about to happen. You know, it doesn't matter whether or not you consent, it's going to happen. You know, so these communities literally were flooded out within months, within a month after that, you know, and that was presumably the first time they ever learned about this. They did not know where it was. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know what it would do. They did not know the full ecological impact. But then Congress would say, hey, come on down and tell us what you lost. Hmm. And so um, there's this one guy whose name always reminds me of LaRouche. I'd have to look at my notes, you know. Hmm. Um, but he almost has a name like LaRouche, but he's just this native dude. And he's like, you want me to describe the intangible things I lost? How can I describe to you what mouse beans are? Which mouse beans are also known as hog peanuts, if you want to go oh, Wikipedia them. But that. they're a perennial mm-hmm. plant that is very, very, very good at growing. It just grows wild vertically in the ground, across the ground. It goes wild. And uh, there's so many stories amongst elders. Like, I mean, mild. They're still alive. You can talk to people who remember this plant, you know, and it still exists. Don't, it wasn't wiped out, luckily, uh, but it was almost wiped out by this stuff. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they talk about elders who survived the winter because they were able to harvest these plants in the winter to survive. They were able to harvest enough mm-hmm. that provided for them. And as somebody who's grown up in such harsh winter conditions, Denver, South Dakota, Michigan, of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Worst snow in all of the country. In each of those places, it's either it's because of the flatness, it's because of Lake Superior, or it's because of the fucking mountains. You know? <laughs> like, I've never once lived in a good... I lived in Arizona. You know where I lived in Arizona? I lived in the fucking Arizona. mountains. Oh, Yeah, well, I lived in the mountains. The hot <laughs> I don't know if I would like the hot yeah. part. I'm from very much the same... Uh, your neck of the woods, right? Oh, really? Uh, I come from Ho-Chunk land, yeah. Yeah, well, right. I was going to say, what is that, like Milwaukee or like... Uh, yeah, it's Wisconsin. You know, whereabouts. Yep. Well, yeah, I guess but I'll, I'll, guess I'll dox my, my state. What, fuck it. You don't have to um, like dox, but I know yeah. really good approximate locations if you yeah. want to give me like a... No, you were quite landmark. right. Um, uh, well, you know, around the middle of the state. Not, it's, it's more north mm. than, yeah, than that. But. Wausau area? Up north, like up yeah, there. a little more, yeah. Oh, even further. Oh, wow, you're getting into Menominee territory. No, that's about, not that far, yeah, but yeah. Up if there. you're further north um, than Wausau, I mean, like, yeah, my, there's my one folks movie were kind of like hippies, right? So we they okay, they okay. tried to do Madison like you know farm. What did were they? they uh, did they go to school you know maybe I think they had lived in Milwaukee at some point. Yeah. Did they ever go um, to school in Madison? You should ask. They them. never went. They never lived in Madison, but. Oh, really? Because there used to be this cool commune in Madison, actually, that fucking was pretty oh, legit amongst the I bet. during okay. the, like, uh, uh, like the Third World Strike era. 
Okay. Like yeah. just about when ethnic studies was becoming a thing. Uh, they had a 60s, 70s? Okay. That era, yeah. Yeah, that would be, well, that'd be about the time. But yeah, maybe my parents would have known about it. Right. Yeah. Well, they I'm just curious, became. Well, AIM yeah. occupied a lighthouse there in oh. Milwaukee. And then yeah. uh, you have a lot of different Indian occupations all across Wisconsin at that time. Wisconsin, oh, Minnesota, awesome. South Dakota. Like that area in the Midwest is just really popping in Indian mm-hmm. country in general. And so you had a lot of different uh, organizations doing incredible things. That, um, you know, when you look at oh, Chaz, awesome. I wish I had known. You know, like more. imagine yeah. if we had, I think it's 77, there's a, we have the exact number in the audio documentary I'm making, but um, mm-hmm. it, there's a shit ton of fucking Indian occupations before 1973 occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota. Like, mm-hmm. it's something like 70, 71, maybe, occupations or some shit like that. that or occupations or actions, I should say. They weren't always occupied. But they were definitely pissing off enough people that it's like, oh, no wonder the government actually considered the left a threat back then, you know? <laughs> like, Black yeah. Panthers offered AIM uh, dynamite at the 1972 occupation of the BIA building in D.C. Awesome. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> and instead, they were like, no, no, just this give us is... some gasoline. We'll pour a bunch on the carpet. <laughs> so, like, they said, if only well, my parents the... hadn't been bourgeois idealists, hippies, uh, right. you know, they, they could have helped but, uh, out with some of this stuff. But mm. I was interviewing my aunts and uncles, you know, uh, right at, uh, what was it, the 48th anniversary of when they left Wounded Knee. Um, yeah. And, uh, they were talking about the BIA occupation. They were like, yeah, when the media asked us, we said, oh, I don't know, but everybody's definitely smoking outside now. <laughs> 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 so I always thought that was pretty funny. Uh, but like uh, with this Little Mermaid stuff, you have this yeah. real occupation of history, right? You have yeah, this, yeah. Um, you know, uh, you have this very real, like, uh, what was the yeah. island you mentioned in Greece that they even raped and pillaged? Well, there's, um, so this is, um, the, the reading I have is, the Lusiads is very much an Age of Exploration product. This is the, this is Canto 9 um, okay. that I was looking at here. And this is after their adventures in the Indian Ocean. Uh, Vasco da Gama, in reality, uh, did just a brutal massacre of a bunch of, just a, a trading ship that he basically sank and murdered everyone aboard and terrified the population, invaded various places and set up the beachheads that they would use to create the seaborne empire, which compared to the Spanish, they weren't as interested in like land domination. They, they still just wanted to do uh, maritime trade. So it's a little, you know, it's kind of complicated there, but this is a mythologization of that. And then at the end of that, they're all going home, and it's a, this is a fiction. But you know, and all along, all of Vasco da Gama's adventures have been guided by co- councils of the gods. So there's this interesting doubleness here, where on the one hand we have the Christian mythology, where it's you know we're soldiers for Christ, well, it seems crusaders, like the Christian stuff. version of Odyssey, right? The door, you know. Yeah, yeah, a lot, very just, much. Like I don't know this story very well, so like I just yeah, see a yeah. lot of parallels between this and the Odyssey, or like. 
this yeah. and Jonah's story. No, it's a very nerdy thing, the, the, the Lusiad. Not a lot of people know about it, but um, this is a big source for the modern mermaid myth. Uh, there's this whole canto, most of Canto 9. What happens is that Venus, who has been supporting the Portuguese in the Council of the Gods, decides to reward the Portuguese for their labors, some recompense for exertions such as snip the brief span of our lives, is one line. Uh, and would you prepares... say this is like Roman inspired then? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if anything, he's drawing on Virgil's Aeneid a lot. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Sure. Yeah. So then, I mean, it's drawing on all of that mythology that you laid out, right? You lay out this, this ancient mythology, but now under the Hellenistic capital... period really does change that conversation into a Roman influence. I forget the names of the two Roman authors specifically, but that's when you first see um, this change start to happen yeah. where, uh, you know, whether it's a gift or a curse starts to be questioned by these Roman authors. You have uh, whether it's uh, fish people or birds being questioned by oh, these the two authors. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 So mm -hmm. this like the Roman influence is seeing how this is yeah. so much Roman influence. I would suggest yeah. that it's this relation to the Roman co-option of Greek oral histories, right, that yeah. led to this um, plot device. It's a yeah. plot device for the settler historiography, right, mm. the mermaid, mm. you know, and so that's she... my ultimate thesis. Yeah, exactly. So Venus, um, she resolved further to make ready for them in the midst of the sea some divine enchanted isle adorned with greenery and flowers for she owned many in the various oceans washing the earth's shores, as well as those subject to her decrees enclosed within the gates of Hercules. Uh, that's in the Mediterranean, right? There she intended the sea nymphs should wait upon the mighty heroes, all of them lovely beyond compare, with eyes delight, the hearts longing, with dances and singing, secretly working on the nymphs' affections. So with redoubled zeal, each would endeavor to please her beloved mariner, whoever. So, well, and so right and there. So Venus uh, throws him a big sex party that lasts for this whole canto, basically. That's well, I, so Venus is obviously a play on Aphrodite, which if yep, you yep, were a Roman person, that. right, hearing about the myths of Greece, Amphorite, right? Mm -hmm. Amphorite, Aphrodite, you might not give a shit. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, and, okay. And then, um, um, these Roman authors, right? They had a lot more connection because this is at the beginning of the Hellenistic period, right? And uh, the sirens are actually described as nymphs or handmaidens of Persephone mm -hmm. before Hades kidnaps her. And so, oh. the the, uh, the curse of the bird body or the blessing of it. Is bestowed upon them by Persephone's mm. mother to help find her, or because they couldn't find her, depending yeah. on who you ask. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so that combined with the Glorcus and Trident notes yeah. ends up giving you the apparently uh, yeah. Lucidius uh, interpretation of yeah. the Lucidia, Luciads. So I saw yeah. I wrote it down. That's the name of the poem. How you said it, and then I pronounced yeah. it like Greek instead. This of is Roman. from. <laughs> so this is from like fifteen. Um, 
this is from 1580s. Is it? I don't know, 16th 16th century, right? Um, right, exactly. So this, this would guy be who the had modern... probably done a lot of this settler colonial, not settler colonialism, but we've established that these adventurers of these societies are oftentimes rapists. They're oftentimes yeah. murderers, and they're oftentimes yeah. looters of graves and etc. You know, oh, yeah, like, and that's yeah. You have well because between the Roman period and this period, you have uh, the so-called Middle Ages, which is just when mm-hmm. Europe went back to being nothing in the stage of world well. They history lost a lot of reading. It had always been. That's the, that's the big issue. And, they couldn't read in that period, and so they lost right. a lot of information. That I mean, I don't know if they ever could. Of, you know, uh, the well, Romans never cared about Europe. You know. That it's a total exactly. one-way crush that uh, the British Empire and the the Spanish and Portuguese empires have on ancient Greece and Rome. Rome, as soon as it was able to turn to east, move the capital to Constantinople, and hooked into the Silk Road, didn't give a fuck about Europe, you know. And there never was well, a strong one of the early government in Europe. Of, well, it's one of those first examples of settler colonialism's predispositions. Yeah. I guess I would say, or franchise colonialism is probably a more accurate description of what was happening. Yeah. Um, But you do see a lot of the beginnings of what settler colonialism becomes, um, which is like the assimilation within to the culture. You know, Mm -hmm. like, uh, I, I think white supremacists eventually realize that you can't find a solution. You know, so you either have to write them off Hope not. And declare them, uh, you know, something else. Or you have to actually wipe them out, which is just a considerable Which happened in some places. I mean, there's some, like, Caribbean yeah, islands yeah. where there are people that are well, really gone. Even then, like, the Taino are the first people exactly. that Columbus met, and they're still here. You know, oh, we okay. did, Spain, some of Spain that is, yeah, okay. So a lot of them declared them dead. Yeah. They they went from 150,000 people. And then all of a sudden, in the next year's census, Spain said there is no longer Taino people. So either they were all wiped out, or they just declared them non-existent. And that was the case, is they declared them non-existent. But they also tried to wipe out a considerable amount of them. It's just mm-hmm. like you. There's no actual way to put that into practice, besides like what we mm-hmm. saw with Nazism, which was yeah. the most thorough attempt. Quickly, yeah, that's right? one of my favorite definitions of fascism. Actually, is that it's actually just when uh, the capitalists say, "Okay, if we can't be in. If we can't have capitalism, you all got to die," and they just openly well, right. start exterminating. Fascism the is class. capitalism within decay. But I would yeah. also say. How I define it personally is fascism is capitalism in decay that exists within a settler colonial society, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Turned inward, right? So this, so with Germany, they their settler colonial project started late. It didn't pan out. Yeah, they lost their war, and then Mm -hmm. they turned inward on the European project. That's mm-hmm. what named them fascism, is they try to conquer other European nations. Whereas the yeah, in European a way, that's very nation, arbitrary, right? Just They were invading yeah, it's, Eastern Europe. It's an Europe. arbitrary distinction. Yeah, it, it's an arbitrary distinction. 
Yeah. Everything about fascism is exactly the same about settler colonialism. I like that too. Except yeah. it's turned inward. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. Um, which is going to stop us on part one, I think. And I right. uh, will continue this on a part two for sure. Yeah. Because this is such right. a good conversation. And I've only touched half my points, right? So okay, I feel right. like you okay. probably have so more points, too. So we don't have to too. put too much of a bow on this then. But obviously, we haven't seen the new Little Mermaid. So we can't really say anything about it. Uh, I'm sure we'll get a, a, lo- a wonderful takedown from uh, Red Power Hour. And, and other sure. places, right? I <laughs> uh, look forward to that. Well, and so, I, I, yeah, I think we wait for part two until all right the story comes out. And, um, you know, maybe we might reference this in another mm-hmm. collaboration because I feel like we have mm-hmm. several in the works. So right <laughs> look right forward on. to more of this and, the, and how all this right. is only really touched on what we wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for all making right, time uh, for me you with your you busy schedule. Plug? Um, Do you have any Kingless Generation podcast? I'm on Twitter. The handle is irregnato and really nerdy. It's uh, uh, unruled in feminine singular. Yeah, just look for the Kingless Generation. I'm on Patreon too. Okay, well, but thanks so much. I know you have a really uh, busy schedule, so I'm gonna leave you go. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. We're gonna go to Mark's madness after this, so just a little insights behind it. Have a good one, everyone. All right, and uh, message me on uh, Twitter. You know, anytime. All right. Likewise. Talk to you soon. So what a privilege to be able to talk to Shunkmani to on their first podcast in a while. And uh, really fun to get into uh, the Lusiads and realize some things about the original Little Mermaid, right? Uh, and actually, the Disney Little Mermaid kept it from being about all this indigenous stuff and all this conquistador stuff. Uh, by by actually changing the the mermaid's uh, color to white, making her white, even though somehow she is in some other, you know, she's befriending or what, uh, going to ma- marry this very much like sailor explorer kind of guy. Well, where is he sailing and where is he exploring? In Europe somehow he's, he's doing this and, and there's white uh, mermaid girls there? No, I think very much. Uh, you know, sort of originally the, the image uh, is of, it's, it's a transposition of the indigenous woman, right? 
Uh, so to set the stage, Canto 9 begins with Vasco da Gama finally successfully going and doing a little trading in South Asia. But while he's there, oh, those uh, deceptive Muslims are scheming to get him to wait, to delay him until the giant Muslim fleet can arrive there uh, and kill them all so, and, and snuff out this Portuguese presence in South Asia. Uh, nevertheless, there is a good Muslim character, just like in the Song of the Cid, for example. So even here in 1572, you still have this good Muslim character. It's almost obligatory. His name is Mon Said, who became God's instrument, alerting da Gama for which advice the Moor deserves to enter paradise. Uh, he alerted him to the plot. And so Vasco da Gama uh, makes a hasty retreat. He sort of like almost has to fight his way, just pushes his way out, you know, basically, of the port and then heads back to Portugal. Mon Said. He obtained these through the diligence of Mon Said, who was also on board, desiring through heaven's influence to be written in the book of Christ. And we see also in the uh, captivity plays of Cervantes the trope where uh, the good Muslim will desire to become a Christian. And there was a, a liberal assimilationist discourse in Iberia that went hand in hand with the Reconquista, the more violent kind of uh, limpieza de sangre, the cleanness of blood, right? The beginnings of white supremacy. There's a kind of liberalism even here at the beginning of white supremacy. And it continues for quite a while. The revolt of the Moriscos will just have happened, actually. That's also called the Second Revolt of the Alpujarras from 1568 to 1570 or 71. Yeah. So the year before the uh, Lusiadas are printed, published. Um, so not, you know, not reflected there, the, the kind of eliminationist rhetoric that will grow uh, the final expulsion of all Moriscos, you know, all people just of, of uh, North African descent or Arabic descent in any kind of way, you know, based completely now on, on ethnic identity, right, and not religious identity, uh, occurs in 1609, yeah. That's a while. Yeah, so that's the same year as the conquest of the Ryukyu kingdom by Satsuma over in Japan. Yeah, not directly related, but then, and it's right before the final expulsion of the Iberian missionaries from Japan in 1613, 1614. So very, very kind of parallel uh, events in a way, right? And of course, in, in Spain, you have the Spanish Inquisition. In Japan, you have the Shumong Aratameyaku, which is basically, a, you know, the Japanese Inquisition uh, against Christians this time, right, of course. So, you know, as I've said, Canto 9 then becomes a kind of uh, extra, extravaganza of beautiful natural imagery, which I think Kamoench would have experienced a lot of really unspoiled uh, nature as well as maybe permaculture societies, right? Permaculture societies that actually created um, food-producing landscapes in, in a very sort of high-tech way, in fact. Not natural, but uh, induced landscapes that are induced to produce lots and lots of food for humans 
um, through uh, permaculture. That may be actually what lies behind this, but, you know, there's this beautiful island that Venus prepares for the Portuguese and basically throws a sex party for them uh, involving nymphs, sea nymphs, who all uh, sort of pretend to not want to have sex with the sailors, but, uh, of course, they really do, and they're just, uh, just putting up a little bit of a fight just for fun or something. Yeah, and I'll say I'll just say once you should you should imagine throughout you know what are the scenes of horrible uh, um, you know content warning of course but uh, the scenes of rape that would have actually happened to uh, inspire this in fond memory uh, by Camoens um, not so cool uh, so Venus the Cyprian meanwhile ordained by Jupiter to guard the Portuguese and serve as their presiding genius having many years been their guide, wished now as reward for their exploits and to compensate their sufferings, to provide with every power in her employ on the dreary seas an interval of joy. So she prepares an island for them, right? Some restful harbor where her sailors could restore their spent humanity, some recompense for exertions such as snip the brief span of our lives. It seemed right to involve her son Cupid, for through his great powers, even deities are dragged through the mire while humans soar on pinions of desire. And it happened that she owned many islands uh, in the various oceans washing the earth's shores, as well as those subject to her decrees enclosed within the gates of Hercules. That's within the Mediterranean, right? The gates of Hercules are the, um, the Algebra Altaric right? The, the rocks of um, Tariq um, between Morocco and Spain. There she intended the sea nymphs should wait upon the mighty heroes there on this other island, which is somewhere else. Somewhere else, a magical island, right? Soon she was over the hills of Cyprus, where her archer son was even then marshalling a force of lesser cupids for an expedition against mankind to punish the heresy still prevalent in these present days of expending all their passion, for so they were accused, on things intended merely to be used. So you see here too, Camoensh has this kind of critique of just pure class society. There is a certain kind of like progressive sentiment here, right? And again, you know, this like proto-bourgeois kind of liberalism perhaps. Um, and, and he, you know, a lot of these people, this is also the beginning of enlightenment sentiment. Enlightenment sentiment for all that you can critique uh, its various right-wing deviations. The, I think the Davids in the Dawn of Everything have shown conclusively that, and others before them, the people that they cite, right, have shown that indigenous thinkers like Candy Ronk were the source of a lot of these ideas of liberté, égalité, fraternité that the Enlightenment uh, comes to trumpet. These ideas did not exist. I mean, they exist all over the world in all kinds of ways, but they were not dominant in Europe before this. Europe, since maybe the, the megalithic times, was one of the more extreme class societies. And the intellectual tradition that you find coming out of the Middle Ages before this indigenous encounter is very much reflective of that. And this kind of idea is really coming from people like Camoens who have encountered societies that do not have such strong uh, class distinctions, right? 
So he looks, uh, Cupid is looking, right? Um, He saw throughout the world not one ruler anxious for the public good. Whatever love they felt was for themselves and for others like them. So we even have, yeah, this is a class critique, kind of. He saw that instead of honest truth, the hangers-on at palaces peddle flattery, which serves no prince's need to separate the growing wheat from weed. He saw those whose duty was to show God's love to the poor and charity to all, fawning instead on power and wealth. He's criticizing the clergy, right? In a parody of truth and justice, they call foul tyranny order and false severity firmness, passing laws in the interest of the king while the rights of the people are decreasing. So again here, you know, uh, critique of the clergy, uh, you know, of... um, this is very picaresque, right? And maybe it's kind of like hippie, uh, hippie liberalism, and, and it's li- li- libertinous, right? Kind of libertine egalitarianism, perhaps. So Cupid saw, in short, none loving what they should, but all led astray by perverse desires, and was no longer willing to postpone their harsh but fitting punishment. He summoned reinforcements to take to battle sufficient levies to establish a proper sense of awe in all those disobedient to his law, to Cupid's law. Yeah, there's, there's still, there's still, on the other hand, is a, is a kind of class prejudice against peasants, right? Back in the grain state, the peasants stuck in the grain state, Kamoench looks down on them. He's had his unique experiences of getting free of that context. And exploring around, you know, encountering indigenous societies, which in many cases have a, a way better way of doing things, right? And even he see, knows this, sees this, everyone, right? At the time, many, many Europeans who saw indigenous societies knew and felt that their way of doing things was better, right? And this is the real birth of democracy and so on, right? And they had to make up the idea that it comes from ancient Athens or something, right? But uh, yeah, he's, so he has the Cupids go and uh, sharpen their arrows, right? And then uh, to try their hand some experiment on the stony hearts of peasants. Sounds like early MK Ultra. Um, the air hums with the repeated sighs of those wounded by the arrows. Lovely nymphs are at hand to cure wounds so received, for their succor not only reinvigorates the lovelorn, but stimulates to life the yet unborn. I, that's why I meant kind of a, a hippie, but but still, you know, like making, we're going to test on peasants. Some are beautiful and others ugly, according to the nature of the wound, for the poison spreading through the veins demands at time drastic treatment. Some of the victims lie bound in chains through the subtle spells of magicians. This especially baffles and disturbs when the arrows are tipped with certain herbs. So Kamoench knows a lot about certain herbs. He's a, he's a drug dealer. Um, he was setting up the early drug networks, of course, too. So um, for him, Cupid is like is also a druggist, sort of. It's like uh, Operation Midnight Climax. And then uh, Venus gives her command to Cupid. My request is this, that the daughters of Nereus in their watery depths should burn with love for the Portuguese who came to discover the new world and should assemble and await them on an island I am preparing in the midst of the ocean, one supplied with all zephyr and flora can provide. The wind and the, you know, gods of wind and and vegetation, right? Uh, There with every kind of food and drink, with fragrant wines and sweet roses in palaces of marvelous crystal, on lovely couches, themselves more lovely in short, with countless special delights, 
the amorous nymphs should await them, wounded by love, prepared to be tender to those who desire them, and surrender. I wish to populate Neptune's realm where I was born with the strong and beautiful, and let the base and wicked world which challenges your powers, Cupid's powers, take note that neither walls of adamantine nor hypocrisy can avail against it, for who will find on land any quarter if your fires rage unquenched in the water? So strong and populate with the strong and beautiful. I mean, it sounds kind of like a little eugenic uh, discourse there. Um, but who are the strong and the beautiful? They're the ones who sort of submit to Venus and Cupid's desires, you know, those who appreciate love. Um, is a real flower child, is Camoanche, I, I think. So now Venus uh, goes to, to her, her island is ready, and they sail up to it, and they find it, you know, just totally beautiful, and also like um, sort of horny landscape. The landscape is, itself is Right, clear streams festooned with creepers cascaded from the summits until with soft gurgles and little moans they bubbled gently over pearl white stones. And Venus, you know, uh, has them has them waiting and you're supposed to wait for the, the Portuguese and then pretend to not want to have sex. And it's, again, absolutely infuriating to imagine the real scenes that would have inspired this, but um, suddenly they began to discern colors between the green boughs, colors which sight and sense judged were too vivid to be flowers, but fine wool and variegated silks to incite the ardor of lovers, as those breathing human roses veiled part, making themselves more beautiful by art. Astonished, Veloso gave a great shout. Men, he said, this is rare hunting. If ancient pagan rites survive, these woods are sacred to the nymphs. We have found more than the human spirit could ever desire. Plainly, wonders exist, and marvels are apparent, though the world hides this from the ignorant. Let us follow these goddesses and see if they are fantasies or flesh. At this, swifter than any stags, they galloped by the riverbanks. The nymphs fled between the branches, but more contriving than nimble-footed, one by one with smiles and little sighs, they let the greyhounds overtake their prize and the reference to hunting, eating, eating the other. Uh, as they were running, their golden tresses and flimsy silks were blown aside. Desire was redoubled by the glimpse of naked skin suddenly revealed. Um, you know, what is nakedness uh, culturally is different in different societies, right? Uh, and as we know, this too can lead to uh, explorers, conquistadors, settlers, taking liberties where they are not welcome. So they're running, and one tripped on purpose, making it clear by signs more tender than indignant, her breathless pursuer along the strand should fall and lie beside her on the sand. Others elsewhere stumbled upon the unclothed nymphs who were bathing. These began to utter little screams as if surprised by such an invasion, some pretending to be troubled, less by shame than by action, scampered naked into the bush, letting them see just where their itching hands would like to be. One, resorting faster to the famed modesty of Diana the Huntress, hid herself in the lake as another dashed for her tunic on the bank. But at this, a sailor flung himself, fully clothed and shod as he was, not bothering to undress for hurry's sake, to quench his ardor right there in the lake. 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's comedy uh, for Kamoench, but you can imagine the violent scenes that would lie uh, behind this, right? Um, and we do, again, we see this in diaries and things where they are more upfront about just how violent uh, they were and the kinds of things that they did. One example that is not uh, just horrible and graphic, it would be from the first voyage of John Saris to Japan. They are approaching Japan and, and some locals come aboard from like Hirado, I think. And he says, uh, giving leave to diverse of the better sort of women to come into my cabin where the picture of Venus was laid out very lasciviously. Uh, and so he's trying to clearly sexually harass them at best. However, their reaction conditioned by differences in cultural perception and cultural expectations that they have is quite hilarious. He says, uh, whereupon they fell down and worshipped it for Our Lady, whereby we perceived them to be of the Portingales made papists. So they were they were. They had been converted to Catholicism by the Portuguese. Uh, and so when they saw a Western painting of a woman, they just assumed, oh, that's the Virgin Mary. And they start doing their Hail Marys. Uh, they don't think about sex at all. They don't, <laughs> it's not even. So he was cock blocked by the cultural difference there. So enough of that. It goes on for quite a while uh, after that. But um, basically the ending is like the, the leader of them, Tethys herself, the greatest among them whom all the nymphs obey, and said to be the daughter of Coilus and Vesta, as her lovely face plainly attests, filling land and sea with wonder, took as he deserved the captain, Vasco da Gama, in a manner both regal and sincere, proving herself a lady without peer. Then, having revealed to him her name, she explained in noble gracious words her task at fate's immutable bidding was to reveal through prophecy the still unmapped continents, the oceans as yet unsailed, all bound together on this earthly sphere, which Portugal alone deserved to hear. So we have this revelation of like all the other geography of the world. But again, it, it's wild to see this coexisting with the kind of missionary zeal of the anti-Muslim uh, angle in this, right? Uh, although you see similar things in the chivalric romances, the chivalric romances are also full of extramarital sex and things, right? And these are things that clergy at the time and missionaries would condemn them for. And also there are prohibitions against this kind of romance literature from reaching the colonies because, you know, you get uh, indigenous peoples being completely re-educated according to this uh, Christian paradigm. But then they discover, hey, what's all this stuff? This is not exactly uh, according to the Bible now, is it? But we see here an entangled, uh, it's quite a, quite a tangle of, of different things. We do see on the one hand incipient enlightenment consciousness together with a certain kind of maybe libertarian, libertine, uh, hippie, hippy-dippy uh, kind of sort of freedom kind of thing, right? Uh, for an explorer like Kamoench, and that always is the question, freedom for who? And, you know, maybe I'm not the best person to do this, but just by my own lights real quick, if I were to lay out a kind of revolutionary sexual morality, which uh, we need, you know, you can't just have um, 
if you're living in community with people, right? If you really see the end point, if you see the end goal, and that's what I would hope the kingless generation we can do. You're living in community with people. When you're living in community with people, you have rights and you have obligations to those people immediately around you. You know, these are your comrades. These are your relatives. You share aunties and uncles. And whatever kind of sex you want to have, you, you have to look them in the, in the face as precious fellow creatures, you know. And you respect them as, as people. You're not going to, it's not about just doing whatever, you know. If you're hung up on heteropatriarchy, uh, transphobia, these sorts of things, then you don't understand angles, origins of the family, private property, and the state, which this whole podcast, in a way, is an extension of. And Engels there just gets barely into identifying the rainbow, the galaxy of complex uh, family relationships that exist in non-capitalist, non-feudal societies of all different types. There are many, but it's way, way beyond anything that you could even imagine from any family kinship structure that exists today. And that's why when we fight for that. It's important to have a positive vision, I think. I think there maybe should be a revolutionary kind of code. Uh, because if you don't have that, you get some opportunists, actually, that are, like, coming out and being edgy and saying, oh, I'm sex negative. Yeah, I don't. And, yeah, they're, they're rejecting some really lame, actually predatory, uh, so-called leftist, you know, hippie, hippy-dippy bullshit, uh, libertine bullshit about, you know, liberation is when you have sex with everybody, especially me, baby. You know, that, <laughs> that's not revolutionary. That's not going to go anywhere when you're all caught up in drama, when you're bringing predatory sexuality into organizing spaces. You think you're going to be able to make revolution? Dream on. But then some of these people are like, oh, see how bad that is? Well, you know, you might as well retreat into reactionary conservative sexual politics because they mischaracterize what it means to abolish the family. And yeah, I would, I would tend to agree that that formulation is not skillful in the Buddhist sense. You know, that's not a skillful thing to say right now. Uh, it's, it's definitely create the revolutionary family, grow the family, extend the family, make everyone a relative, you know, and there's all different kinds of relatives. Uh, and living in community with them. There's a whole lot of stuff that passes for leftist sexuality that has nothing to do with living in community with people. That's not a support or defense of traditional patriarchal relations in any sort of way, um, right? But it's a very different thing from the kind of just hippy-dippy, libertine, ultimately counter-revolutionary sexual liberation that Kamoinch is glorifying here. Even while, on the other hand, he does have a kind of respect for uh, various indigenous uh, society, various aspects of indigenous societies in a, in a kind of indi uh, enlightenment, European enlightenment kind of way, um, which is limited. But the kinds of things that Europeans were seeing and many genuinely wanting to learn from in the Iroquois Confederacy, in all kinds of permaculture forests, food forests that people had made. But yeah, we have some sexual violence here, patriarchal. This is based on uh, patriarchy, and it's based on white supremacy that is just coming into being here. 
and those things are all interacting together with uh, an incipient bourgeoisie. So, um, yeah, how is Disney going to deal with all this? I wonder how is, <laughs> is, how are they going to handle that? You know, isn't that going to come up? That was actually my reaction to this, and that's what inspired this. And yeah, this is the birth of the bourgeoisie, too, who is beginning to manipulate capital on a global scale after capturing the capital networks of the Silk Road of uh, China, India, and the Muslim world, right? Now, that, uh, that hasn't all been completed at this point. This is still very much a moment in flux here. And it's interesting to think about all the possibilities that that moment held. I think the, we shouldn't be deterministic. We, you know, we should resist like, oh, this is where it all started. It had to begin here. And if only, if only this, well, you know, if it, if, yeah, actually though, also if, if this particular thing hadn't happened in this way, it could have gone a whole different direction at any, at any given point, it could have gone a whole different direction. And that also means that right now, right here and right now, it can go a different direction. You and I, we can organize the global working class, casualized class, peasant class, people who live off the land are going to be especially powerful. Reach out to the people around you and really just, uh, it's amazing. There's, there are wonderful people everywhere. And we're being socialized in such a way now with the pandemic, especially where it's becoming harder to, to just reach out and to organize. But we have to do this right here, right now. Just start right around you. Who, who do you see? Start the Vanguard party, develop Vanguard consciousness. And this is something that is willed. It is not something that you can just leave to fate. That's the whole point of Lenin's What is to be Done. Another great thing that's happened recently is that Joshua Mufawad Paul has released a new book, Politics in Command, which takes up specifically uh, this struggle against economism, which is something that people unconsciously fall into all the time. It's actually very common to just be deterministically expecting that the advance, the advance of the productive forces will lead inevitably to revolutionary consciousness. Uh, that uh, that's another species of it, right? But, you know, just in general, relying on the worker struggle alone to just generate revolutionary consciousness is not going to happen. That's why you ultimately do need a vanguard. Um, it can go a different direction. It could have gone a different direction then. It can go a different direction now. Reach out to your neighbor. Organize. I'm Fergal Schmudlock, and I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation. Oh, so